This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to Composite Two Star Recruits, a USC recruiting podcast where a couple of one-star hosts talk about five, four, and three-star prospects and everything in between. I am your one-star host, Chris Trevino, and as always, I am joined by my podcasting partner in crime, Gerard Hurricane Martinez. Gerard, just to start things off, we're not jumping into the cold open yet. I did have a couple of maybe a little bit announcements for the top of this show. The first one being we have smashed through our first 100,000 downloads for this podcast in just less than 20 episodes, which I am very proud of. Maybe you'll be a little bit proud of. I'm not sure. I haven't gotten any reaction to this. First time I'm telling you this, but I posted on the Peristyle this uh, accomplishment. We got a lot of good feedback. I just want to tell the listeners, because these are the people that actually download our podcast and listen to us every week. Uh, thank you for all the support and all the downloads that we have gotten. And I'm looking forward to the next 100K and 500K. So just going to keep uh, stacking this, these wins. And uh, Gerard, do you want to say anything? Do you even care that we've we've surpassed this milestone? Thank you very much. I have no reference for what 100,000 is uh, compared to similar podcasts. But, I mean, I thank everybody for uh, listening to the podcast and um, downloading it and giving us your time. So I uh, appreciate that very much to uh, the Peristyle always. And uh, even the Filthy Casuals who are uh, coming in the rear to well, – that didn't, that didn't sound right uh, – arriving, uh, you know, uh, through uh, the, the, the free open door – uh, to uh, listen to us ramble on about USC football and USC recruiting and uh, getting a little, you know, taste of uh, the, the hardcore side of it, you know, the, the devil in the details and uh, some of the uh, minutiae that goes into building the football program because that's what recruiting is about. It's about um, the next year always. It's the next Reggie Bush, the next Matt Liner, the next group of recruits that are going to build that uh, USC championship team, potentially that USC dynasty that Trojan fans want to see back uh, in uh, in L.A. soon. Absolutely. And I believe we've actually converted a couple of filthy casuals and hopefully more in the future that have joined up at uscfootball.com. You can do that right now. Join us on the Peristyle. Got to get that sign-up plug in because it is a free podcast. But overall, we do love the support that you guys have given us. 100K, big accomplish- accomplishment, and we're looking forward to more. Uh, the other just programming note is that maybe we sound a little bit different today. We had a little bit of internet issues, so we had to go to our old school method, and Gerard is calling in uh, using, you know, a cell phone and not a Skype call like we've done the last, oh, I don't know, dozen ones. So we're going a little bit back to kind of how we started. Uh, so just a little bit of technical difficulties, but we'll be back. Probably Blame it on Putin. Blame it on Putin. The Russian cyber attack infrastructure Putin 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 yeah I mean maybe I'll let's see if I feel like cutting that if not we're just gonna roll on with that <laughs> we're just gonna roll on with that I'm probably not gonna cut I'm just gonna leave it cut 
Uh, yes, that is a, Gerard's, a grand theory on his, specifically his Skype being down, because uh, my Skype is working here at the studio. But nevertheless, just want to give that programming note. If, you, if you're like, they sound a little bit different, it's because we're doing it our old school way. Phone call, calling in Gerard from the IE. And well, with that, we can actually move into the cold open of the show. And it's not going to be... I guess a great cold open for USC fans because as we hinted and talked about in our last episode of the two star recruits, which was our longest episode to date, and it might actually be our longest, or sorry, our most downloaded episode to date. So thank you for that, you savages listening to nearly three hours of content. But we talked about how Lucas Simmons, USC's other primary offensive tackle, blue chip tackle prospect in the 2023 class. He had set his commitment date, going to be July 11th. So we we mentioned we're either going to be talking about another L for USC in the O-line recruiting or talking about one of their priority targets joining the class. And unfortunately, it is the former for USC fans, uh, Lucas Simmons, who USC, we felt like, was in a really good position in his recruitment for most of the time, sort of faltered at the end. Uh, Florida State was able to keep him home, grab his commitment the he is a sort of a Swedish international prospect, but he has been living and playing out there in Florida. So the Seminoles were able to keep him home. Uh, Tennessee was also in the mix. And, you know, depending on where you're hearing it from, Tennessee was actually maybe finished second in that uh, that recruitment with USC coming up around that third uh, place finish. So just another, you know, loss for USC in their USC offensive line recruiting Coming off Francis Mauioga a couple more a couple weeks ago on July fourth, it's not been a great month in terms of you know trying to lock up their priority targets in a very offensive line needy class. And we have a couple questions about Francis Mauioga for later in the show and sort of NIL, but I think we're going to address some of that here in the Colt Open because we do want to talk about Lucas Simmons and offensive line recruiting as a whole which I feel like we've done before, but, you know, you guys have been asking about it, so we're going to have another discussion about it. And I think we also want to kind of just talk a little bit about recruiting momentum and how that works because USC did have a lot of recruiting momentum leaving June with that big official visit weekend, and it doesn't seem like it has paid off necessarily. Um, so I guess we're going to talk about that as well. So, Gerard, jump in wherever you want. I don't know where if you want to go on Lucas Simmons, if you want to talk about momentum offensive line recruiting just just take a bite out of whatever you want hurricane <laughs> well at this point obviously the top two offensive tackles on usc's board have gone elsewhere i think with francis Malagoa, you're looking at a difficult flip down the line if usc wants to continue to recruit him i think mainly it has to do with the schools that these two offensive tackles committed to with Francis, he's committed to Miami. That's a new coaching staff. We know that Mario Cristobal is an offensive line coach, as a head coach. We know that they are paying a lot in terms of NIL and, you know, how that plays out uh, with the NCAA kind of snooping around the Miami football program. We don't know. But I think the newness of the coaching staff, and regardless of the year they're going to have, uh, they're going to be able to probably keep most of those commits because, They're going to sell that they're trying to turn the program around. And 
I don't think that the expectations have necessarily been built in Miami the way they've been built in USC. Um, so I think even still with USC, there's still a lot that can be sold on the program, even with seven or eight wins. And certainly I think that's true of Miami as well. So I don't think Miami having another mediocre season is going to necessarily shake loose a lot of those commitments. Whereas with Lucas Simmons committing to Florida State, you know, Mike Norvell is on the hot seat to some extent. Um, he's uh, only in his, I think, his third year, maybe yeah, his fourth year there year. at Florida State. Third year. Yeah, his third year. But they have not performed very well. And so there's always already a lot of talk about potentially replacing him and going after somebody different. And certainly the turnover with the coaching staff could give some of those recruits maybe second thoughts about committing there. Um, and I think that Lucas Simmons just as a profile player, and we talked about this before his commitment, you know, trying to peel ourselves away from projecting too much as we did with maybe Josh Connerly, where you look at all the boxes that need to be checked in his recruitment and the type of person he is and not just player he is with academics and things off the field, how well USC sort of fit what he was looking for. And obviously it wasn't enough for him to commit to USC outright, but potentially if USC put some wins on the field, they continue to recruit him. They continue to develop that relationship with him because I think with Florida state, the one angle that they always had on USC and the other schools recruiting him was that that coaching staff had a really good relationship with him because he had taken numerous unofficial visits there. Uh, he had been around the program quite a bit. And I think that helped uh, with Florida state being able to win his commitment. Uh, whereas USC, obviously, you've got a new coaching staff. Uh, Josh Henson uh, was was just kind of getting to know him and, and recruit him. And I think he really liked USC, but it was on the other side of the country. And certainly, I think his parents had some questions about him uh, being in L.A. But, you know, again, time can sort of change some of that. And so I think with Lucas Simmons, he is still a potential recruit for USC down the line. I think more so than Francis Malgoa. Um, could USC flip both? I mean, anything is possible, but I think it's uh, going to be a little more difficult for Simmons. So that's the two top offensive line recruits off the board. We did a little piece sort of on what's next, um, a premium piece that went up uh, last week, kind of trying to get a feel for – actually, it went up uh, earlier this week. I'm already – thinking you know it's, it's coming gone but uh, lucas yeah, simmons just don't say we you did it gerard turned that yeah up. hurricane uh co committed um and so that kind of goes into uh some of the other prospects that are on the board who usc has offered uh, we didn't get too much into who could they offer you know that's potentially another piece if you start to analyze and evaluate um some of the other targets that are on the west coast but i think it certainly, you know, kind of causes you to take a step back and look at the offensive line as a whole. And unfortunately, coming into this recruiting cycle, it looked like USC were in a good position for a lot of top players. And that has subsequently changed in recent months. Um, just looking at who they had on campus to visit and who has already gone elsewhere. But they can circle back. And they can look at some of these local players and they do have some guys that they offered scholarships to and had good relationships to who have committed to other Pac-12 schools 
uh, because USC was looking out of state and they were looking to land uh, more highly rated players. So you might have to pivot if you're USC at this point and start looking at those local guys once again and, uh, you know, try to make a push as you go into the season. And I will say that winning cures a lot of plan B type-itis, if you want to call it. Local players feel like they're picked over um, for players that were national and guys that, you know, they wanted to go after who were in Texas or Florida, et cetera. Some of those local guys are going to feel like, well, hey, man, you, you know, you didn't prioritize me out of the gates. But if you have a relationship with those kids and you start to build some momentum on the field, you know, things can change. You can bring them in on unofficial visits and um, they get sort of caught up in that momentum of, of development and winning and the excitement of the fan base. And so you do have a shot, kind of a second shot at some of those guys locally. And I'm sure that that was part of the strategy this summer going in and really going hard after a lot of the guys that were out of state and trying to get your foot in the door with some of them, some others trying to close the deal. And obviously that didn't happen in the case of uh, Francis Magoa or Lucas Simmons. Uh, but nevertheless, still feeling like you have that ability to come back to recruit some of the local players that you offered scholarships to. And there are a few guys out there um, that are good players that USC is looking at. So again, put up a piece on that. Uh, we'll look forward to maybe potentially some guys that they haven't offered scholarships to who are guys that uh, on the offensive line have the talent to potentially play at USC, maybe not right away. I mean, that's the big issue here is that you're losing out on two guys that are potentially immediate impact players next year. USC needs that. They have failed to sign a real franchise offensive tackle the last three recruiting cycles. So this is the fourth recruiting cycle that they have struggled to find that left tackle that's going to keep your quarterback upright. And that has a little bit of a domino effect. And we sort of touched on that as well in that article of, you know, how it uh, becomes a little bit of an issue for your quarterback. You know, uh, thankfully Lincoln Riley has had a lot of success coaching dual threat quarterbacks, guys that are athletic. He's got Heisman trophy winners there from guys that were able to get outside the pocket, extend plays with their feet. And you have that in Caleb Williams. You have that in Malachi Nelson. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's interesting to see that they have dabbled a little bit in pro-style quarterbacks where, you know, we've seen that's been a big issue for USC where they've had three different starting quarterbacks because of injuries, you know, the past two seasons. And that's because, you know, they've continued to struggle to recruit good offensive linemen. So it's one of those things when you've got an athletic quarterback, he's going to mitigate some of that because he's going to be able to scramble away. He's going to be able to make plays with his feet. And, uh, I mean, I think that's just a, a big part of college football and college football offenses anymore. So I, I really can't quite understand it, you know, why USC would, uh, or, or specifically Lincoln Riley would want to go away from what's made him so successful. But nevertheless, uh, they have, um, you know, looked at some pocket quarterbacks uh, here uh, in, the, in the 2023 and 2024 class. Um, but right now they have guys uh, already ready to go lined up in Caleb Williams and Malachi Nelson that can help sort of mitigate uh, the, uh, the, the, the misses that they've had on the offensive line. But at some point, you're going to have to try to land some guys if you want to be an elite school. You've got to be able to recruit well on the offensive line. Absolutely. And I know we've gotten a couple questions about specifically like plan B options if, you know, Lucas and Francis both go elsewhere, which obviously they have at this point this summer. We got one specifically from someone named Chip who DM'd me about what are the plan B options for those guys. And I think the first two that really jump out, and you talked about this in your piece, but the first two would be, you know, a guy like Spencer Fano, 
who the old staff offered out of Utah and highly ranked uh, offensive line prospect. They offered him early in the prospect. The old staff did. So I don't believe he has the reoffer, but he did take somewhat of a surprise unofficial visit uh, this summer. He was on campus. So that would probably be a guy you want to, you know, hit up a little more, check that tape, get that reoffer out there if you do want to go that route. And then the other one being Caleb Lomu, uh, the four-star offensive tackle out of Gilbert, Arizona. USC did offer him uh, earlier in the summer, and that was an offer that was directly correlated to a guy like Elijah Page, who another Arizona offensive tackle they, they had offered very early when Josh Henson came aboard, ended up committing to, to Notre Dame. And that was someone I was very high on. And I thought, you know, he was really high on USC, but obviously I think USC had others higher than him on their board, you know, a guy like Lucas and Francis and Elijah was scheduled to take that official visit in the middle of June, but went ahead and popped for the fighting, fighting Irish. He's a guy you could maybe flip down the line, especially if you're having a very good season and, you know, bring him on an official visit for that Notre Dame game, you know, the school he is committed to, but Lomu was a direct sort of offer to Elijah coming off their board, so to speak. And, you know, he's a really good prospect, six foot five, I think 260 pounds right now. Uh, that's another guy out of Arizona you could sort of step in with. And I believe he is expected to take an official visit at some point to USC. I need to get more confirmation on that. But uh, as far as I heard, I guess the last time I had, uh, followed up with that. He was likely going to take an official visit to USC, uh, assuming that was in season. So we'll have to get more on that. But those would be the first two, like actual specific names that I think come to the forefront of for for both of us uh, in terms of quote unquote Plan B tackle options. Yeah, and locally you got a guy like Elijah Jacket, the six seven, two hundred and eighty pound offensive tackle. From Orange, California, who's already committed to Washington, you know, that's a guy that, uh, you know, took a couple unofficial visits to USC. He felt like USC was making him a priority at that point. He felt like USC was really recruiting him hard. He was really excited about that. And um, again, you know, USC sort of chose to go in that direction of the out-of-state prospects. And, and certainly, you know, you've got a board and you have guys that you feel more comfortable with or you feel are the immediate impact players. And you go down from there. And so it might have been just one of those things where they wanted to focus on the out-of-state guys. They had a read where they felt like they could get Francis Maragoa or they could get Lucas Simmons. I think more the latter than the former. Um, but it didn't work out. You know, uh, those guys have gone elsewhere. And so uh, you do have to sort of pivot in your strategy. And the guys that are going to be easier to flip are probably going to be the guys that are closer to home because those guys are going to be able to take unofficial visits to campus uh, during games and you're going to be able to have them around the program. That is um, absolutely crucial to be able to make sure that you have guys that are coming to the games that are around the football program. You cannot have a turnout like you had for the camps this summer where there's really no top prospects that are on campus. you got to have the guys around. And USC, you know, during the early spring, did a really good job getting guys on campus. They had a lot of really big-time unofficial yeah. visitors. So. I don't think that that's going to be a huge issue for them. It's just a matter of, you know, staying on top of it and certainly on the field, giving them a reason to come to these games and uh, feel like they're going to see some good matchups and they're going to see some good football. USC did actually an exceptional job last season 
despite the losing of getting some pretty good talent on campus for unofficial visits. Uh, it, it was pretty wild. Clay McGuire and the support staff did an excellent job just with offensive linemen, Devon Campbell. Um, you had, uh, you know, like a handful of guys from the offensive line and other positions that despite USC only winning four games and getting blown out at home uh, versus some of these teams still being able week in and week out to get guys on campus. So they have to continue to do that. You have to continue to get unofficial visitors on campus, get them around the program, continue to build that relationship, build that comfort zone with these players. And I think if you have good football on the field, uh, locally you're going to be able to potentially turn some of these guys. And even Elijah Page being one of those guys. I mean, he's in Arizona, Phoenix, not too far. He can drive to USC on a Saturday morning to go watch a, an afternoon game. Uh, certainly Notre Dame's not going to want him to do that. But uh, he's got a, a buddy there in Deuce Robinson who's pretty high on USC at Pinnacle High School. You know, maybe they carpool and decide to go uh, hit up a game. Maybe, you know, they go check out that Notre Dame game and USC is able uh, to put the hurt on Notre Dame in person. That kind of thing can, can flip a commitment real quickly. So there is still light at the end of the tunnel in, sort of, in terms of offensive line recruiting. Uh, but USC is just going to have to work that much harder to turn some of this stuff around. And again, a lot of it is going to be the product on the field and the momentum they're able to build on the field. It does matter. Um, does it, is it going to matter to Francis Malagoa? Is it going to matter so much to Lucas Simmons? I think there are other things that have to happen that are out of USC's control at this point to be able to flip those commitments. But it's not out of the realm of possibility that those things actually do happen. Let's just, I'm just going to ask you point blank because I've gotten this question a lot and I've seen it a lot on Twitter among the quote-unquote filthy casuals. It's been on our board a lot, uh, especially in the aftermath of Simmons committing to Florida State. But should USC be panicking about offensive line recruiting? You know, I was very optimistic with Lucas and Francis for the most part of the summer. And obviously that hasn't played out. But I'm still looking around and I'm saying it's only July. So that's sort of my rationale with it. So how do you feel about it? Should USC be panicking about offensive line recruiting? No, but I understand it. I understand the concern in general for recruiting right now because USC seems pretty flat-footed, if not on their heels. Uh, I think that there's you know, still a list of recruits even outside of offensive line that we're waiting to get decisions on before summer's end to really see where the core of this class is as we go into the season. So I understand there's concern there because some of these guys, you know, Trey Wilson, for example, uh, six, four, 235 pound defensive end uh, from Garland and a guy that really high on USD after the visit goes and visits Baylor now there's a lot of buzz about him going to Baylor. And you have those emotes that we go back to. And people are sort of trying to connect the dots and connect the dots with, okay, USC obviously had a read and had a feel that they were going to get these commitments. If they can't even get those commitments, then there's cause for concern because that was maybe a bad read. Tomorrow isn't signing day. August, fortunately for USC, it's not signing day. So you have to kind of take a step back and realize this is just another leg of the process. And yes, I know that 
you know, signing day comes earlier nowadays. A lot of these commitments do stick over the summer, but there are plenty that don't. And we have to go back to last year in that sort of fog of a coaching search with all this stuff going on. And we're getting in November. And it was just crazy. The amount of turnover going on with coaches. I don't think we anticipate that this year, but did we really anticipate it last year? I mean, it's sort of unpredictable and certainly NIL creates yet another variable of unpredictability. And I'll go back to sort of what I said last week from a strategy standpoint and I know I'm kind of going away a little bit from just the focus on offensive line recruiting, but in general, when the NIL conversation happens, I still go back to business. Now, listen, I'm no mogul, and I didn't go to business school, but I know that this is basically becoming somewhat of a negotiation with a lot of these recruits, and I don't know from a business standpoint that you want to throw your best offer out there in July when the deal is not going to be closed until December. And it's not going to be closed because despite these deals and these contracts and these things happening with collectives, I don't think there's a lot of binding deals and things in writing that are going on. Uh, maybe they look like that on the surface. Maybe they look like that to the untrained eye. But that's a paper trail for potential violations because we know that you cannot, uh, as a collective or as an NIL organization, attach an inducement to a deal. You can't say you're going to get this amount of money if you commit to this school, if you are a starter at this school, if you are an All-American at this school, etc. So I don't know that there's a lot there that binds any of these verbal commitments. And so somebody comes along later in the process and says, okay, we're going to give you such and such and $1. It doesn't all of a sudden change things. Now, the precedent was with Texas A&M's class. Texas A&M last year really started to build their class at the end of July where they had this quote-unquote pool party. They're going to have that again this year, and they're going to have some of these recruits that USC is looking at at that pool party. Now, there was a lot of allegations thrown around about that particular event, and I'm not going to repeat them, and I'm not going to get into them because it's just gossip and hearsay. Uh, I didn't see anybody coming with any evidence, but certainly it created enough of a stir that you know it caused Nick Saban to say some things about Texas A&M, and it caused him things to be retorted by Jimbo Fisher in a press conference, which was interesting in and of itself. So that class really built at the end of July and through the season, even though by record it was a mediocre year, they were able to beat Alabama. And I think that class was really sort of built on beating Alabama. That was a big thing for, for Texas A&M. You know, they, they could say, Hey, you know, we had injuries this game. We can't, we played this game close. But, hey, we beat Alabama, so you know what we're capable of. And they really kind of stood on that, as well as their collective uh, making a lot of deals, allegedly. So that's the precedent where everybody's like, okay, this is kind of scary because, you know, even with a mediocre class, they were able – or, excuse me, a mediocre season, they'll still be able to be, uh, build this elite class and keep it together towards the end of the year. But that was really like the first. That was sort of a catalyst for NIL and collectives and what could happen uh, despite ne not necessarily having like a championship run on the field. Now everybody's sort of aware of that. Now everybody's aware of the Texas A&M effect. And you're seeing that with Louisville. You're seeing that with Miami. You're seeing that with Oregon where, you know, you have some pretty mediocre programs there uh, landing just five stars after five stars. 
And it's like, wow, okay, that's, that's, um, that's interesting. But everybody is aware of that now. And that in itself is going to kind of change the game as we get later in the season. And again, I think if you're coupling some momentum on the field and perhaps, you know, going back to the NIL and, you know, that might, some schools might come out of the woodwork here. You know, it, it, you haven't heard a whole lot about Alabama this off season. You know, there's, all these guys in the South that are going here and going there, and you're looking like, where's Alabama in all this? That's, that's interesting to me because Alabama has always been ahead of the curve when it comes to recruiting strategies and the latest in recruiting. They, they tend to have a very good pulse on loopholes with the NCAA, and they have not been as, as brazen as some of these other programs. And so you have to wonder if they know something. And so, you know, they, they kind of been a little quiet and uh, certainly they're confident that they can put a championship run on the field, which is different than where USC sits. I mean, USC has that confidence. We've heard that from Lincoln Riley already, but you, you know, Alabama has done it. USC wants to do it. You know, that's the difference. So if USC is actually able to do it, uh, you know, maybe there's some things that change down the line that we didn't see last year. You know, maybe, you know, some of these schools that have had that success with the collectives and NIL, you know, maybe they don't have the last word in July. Maybe that last word is actually coming in November and December. Gerard, you may not be a mogul or you may not have gone to business school, but you were talking like you have a degree from one of the most prestigious <laughs> business. I was talking like Tony Robbins. You're was talking I talking like a like businessman? And that's exactly the kind of thinking that we need in the halls of Trevino Tech. And you said it yourself, the best offer, probably your best offer isn't coming in July. So, Gerard, I, I would expect a nice little envelope voicemail or something in December with the, with the purple crab on it. So I want you to be on the well, for that. To, to, but, you know, to play devil's advocate to my own argument, <laughs> okay. there is also the precedent of Josh Connerly. And oh. I hate to burst the bubble, but that was, an, that was a situation where the commitment and the signing was coming all in one. And obviously USC got outmaneuvered there. They got outmaneuvered there. And so there is precedent where, you know, there's a recruitment and it matters and it's go time. It's the 11th hour and USC hasn't necessarily closed the deal. Now, they have to learn from that, and perhaps that is what we're seeing. Perhaps we are seeing that lesson mm -hmm. uh, put and applied where it's like, look, we can think we have it done. We can think the deal is done, and the kid is coming to USC, and he says he's coming to USC, and at the last minute, oh, he's at Oregon for an unofficial visit that nobody knew about. So you don't want that to happen to you. So you know, maybe you sort of, you know, chill out and say, listen, hey, man, you know, we put our good first step forward during the summer and these kids know what USC is about. Uh, we continue to recruit them. And then the back end of this variable, which is NIL, we start to push that harder later in the season. Now, again, that is speculation. That is conjecture on my point. I'm not making any promises or predictions. I'm just trying to look at things rationally and again, sort of give you some balance as to both sides. I understand the concern. I think it's warranted to some extent. Uh, but at the same time, I think we are in the process of recruiting 
midway, and we are also in the process of some of an evolution of college football with NIL. Again, Texas A&M set sort of a precedent, but we have to really see what happens now that everybody's aware of the possibilities. And we also have to kind of sit back and see if the NCAA actually does get involved in some of this because they've already been a little bit vocal about collectives and some of the things that are going on. And certainly it's a, it's sort of a warning shot, but it's not necessarily something that has changed the approach of, uh, of some of these schools. I mean, the only thing that it's done is it's caused some of them to go back to Capitol Hill and try to change some of their state laws, which I think is interesting. I think that's a little bit telling uh, that they're maybe a little bit nervous about some things that have gone on. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, I don't know that it's enough to really stop uh, the practices that are going on right now from a collective standpoint. Um, so we're just going to have to see how that continues and how it plays out as we get in to the year. I mean, it might be one of those things where USC just says, hey, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to approach it. If we lose guys because of it, so be it. That is what it is. But there's been so much investment over the year with USC football, investment that, you know, we really questioned and I, and I certainly questioned a year or two ago. You know, is USC really willing to invest and commit in athletics in general, but football specifically, and they go out and they do something that's unprecedented almost for USC football. Certainly in my lifetime, they've never gone to another school and gotten a proven head coach of the ilk of Lincoln Riley and paid him that much money to come to USC. I mean, the closest thing that I've ever seen to that would have been J-Rob too. And when he was getting pushed out with the Los Angeles Rams, which isn't quite the same level, uh, they really went out and did something that they haven't done before getting Lincoln Riley. That shows a ton of commitment. They've shown a ton of commitment making the deal, breaking away from the Pac-12 and going in to the Big Ten. Uh, they could have just sat on their hands and said, hey, you know, we're on the West Coast and, uh, you know, we like West Coast schools and we like West Coast football. And regardless of whether it's crabs in a bucket or not, we're just going to continue to uh, play along. It's a new commissioner. Maybe things will change, right? Because we've seen that with past administrations. But this administration at USC did not do that. They are active and they want to play with the big boys. So you think, you tend to feel at least, that this NIL thing, we haven't heard the last of it with USC. If they're going to put the investment on the front end, then I think the follow-through is potentially there. We just have to sort of wait and see how things play out. Absolutely. And sort of one more kind of topic that I wanted to talk about in this cold open before we jump to sort of like the newsier stuff for the rest of our show and questions is this idea of recruiting momentum with USC right now? Because obviously, when we're talking a month ago, USC felt really, really hot, not in terms of a bunch of commitments that have come in, just the amount of visitors they were able to get in specifically with that that mega weekend that they had, and sort of this idea that USC was set up to get really rolling going into July and then into August, and then ultimately into the season as they look to build more and more momentum with, you know, hopefully for USC fans, the a much better product on the field. But right now, it seems like the Trojans are a little bit stuck, I would say. You know, the momentum has slowed down significantly. I don't know where you would put it on a scale of 1 to 10. But right now, you know, in college football, it's all about momentum, whether that's 
on the field, within a game, within a quarter, or with recruiting and as a program. Because right now, if you're looking around the college football, you know, Miami, red hot right now in terms of their recruitment. Tennessee, red hot right now in terms of commitments they're picking up this month. USC, you know, is significantly slowed down. But there is sort of maybe this hidden momentum that we're not seeing. As you mentioned, there's a bunch of visitors from that weekend or last month in general that we are still waiting to hear from commitments. You know, Warren Robinson, Trey Wilson, Braylon Shelby, who we're going to talk a little bit more later about in the show, Alani Noah, Micah Buenelos, Walker Lyons, and then the big other big priority recruit, Tackett Curtis. His recruitment is winding down. USC in is it in in his top three. So, you know, I'm, I'm bringing it up now. USC's kind of really slowed momentum, but you know, maybe in three weeks we're talking about how USC is on a little bit of run uh, with if they pick up, you know, at least four of these guys that I just mentioned on the list. So there's always that potential with the ebb and flow of momentum in college football. So Gerard, where do you feel like USC's momentum is right now? Well, I would certainly say there's at least four silent commitments there or recruits that at one time coming away from the official visits to USC were silent commitments. So the bulk of that weekend, because everything is going to come back to that weekend. It was such a big weekend. You got 20 plus recruits on campus, two dozen recruits on campus. And again, some of those guys you're trying to get traction with, all right? Anthony Hill, Jalen Hall, Jalen Hale, excuse me, they're not guys that USC ever had any kind of lead for, right? And they've eliminated USC at this point, and it was just one of those things where you go, you know what, USC's just trying to get their foot in the door. They're going to see if they got an angle there, if they can sort of make a move with those recruits. But there was no expectation that USC would come out on the weekend leading for a handful of those guys. There, there, there was a few of those guys, and we talked about it leading up to the weekend, that were really sort of like, okay, USC's on the outside looking in on their recruitment, so they're just trying to make a move here to get to a place where perhaps they go ahead, they commit to another school, but USC makes enough of an impression that maybe, maybe with a really good year and you're playing in the Rose Bowl at the end of the year, you can sort of revisit that recruitment because you don't know where these kids are going to commit and you don't know what's going to happen at those schools, what kind of stability there's going to be with those coaching staffs. So, yeah, some of those guys have eliminated USC and they've moved on. Okay, fine. That's not, you know, beyond expectations. Uh, the bulk of the group that you looked at at USC thinking, okay, USC has a potential to close the deal, they have yet to commit yet. Right. And you, you named the, the, the list of guys. I mean, Warren Roberson, I think, is a guy that USC could definitely still get. Um, I think it's right now kind of a battle with Oklahoma State and then some other schools there that have come in late showing him interest. And I think he's really sort of torn between committing now during the summer. I think his coaches at Red Oak want him to commit before his senior year. They want to focus on his senior season. But his momentum as a recruit and his stock has really just soared at the back end of summer. He's really a May evaluation guy. That's where a lot of his bigger offers have come. So, you know, he's kind of like, dang, man, there's a lot of visits that I could still take. And there's things that I could still do because people are just starting to take more interest in me. 
So he's a guy that I think personally he would probably like to prolong his recruitment a little more, maybe take more visits. But at the same time, there's pressure on him locally to just get it done. So he's there for the taking for USC. We'll see how that goes. Trey Wilson, we already kind of talked about him being maybe that guy that's um, the barometer for that weekend and how much of a success or failure it would be. Because I think if he goes to Baylor, which is what everybody thinks right now, that's a bit of a punch in the gut because that's a guy that I would say potentially was a silent commitment that was flipped by Baylor, which is not necessarily, you know, a school that it's on the up and it's on the up and coming. It's a, it's a, a rising school, but it's in a smaller conference that is borderline, you know, pack or a big five anymore, power five anymore. And um, you, you just shouldn't lose those battles if you're USC, particularly if the kid was that sold on USC coming out of the visit, you know, for Baylor to be able to close and to beat you out there uh, at the last minute is, is really tough. That's a bit of a Hail Mary for Baylor to be able to pull him away from USC, in my opinion. Uh, Braylon Shelby down to Texas, USC, we, we kind of felt like that was the battle all along. Texas A&M came in there with a scholarship offer, and I was told that the expectation was he would be at that pool party weekend at the end of the month. So we're going to see if that still happens. I mean, some of these guys could still commit because they just want to commit, and they're going to want to get the, 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 the phone calls and the pressure done and over with but they could still end up going out and taking some visits to some schools and kind of reuniting some of that with some, some other schools. So, you know, it's verbal commitments. Again, I don't know how binding it is. Um, Alani Noah took that official visit to Oregon after he took the official visit to USC. I don't know if USC was expecting that. I know the feeling was he would probably announce for USC right after that official visit weekend because he was so high on USC from that visit. And that hasn't happened. Uh, Michael Benuelos was a guy that had always seemed like a USC-Oregon battle. And he was visiting Oregon last. And we all knew that. So I think the feeling is still, it's close. But everybody's looking at the success that Oregon has had recently. They're another team that's pretty hot right now. And they've beaten USC out for, I don't know, I've lost count of how many offensive linemen so far. Even though Mario Cristobal is not there anymore. So that's just one of those things, you know, the pattern is you, uh, Oregon wins out of that particular battle. And, and you talk about Walker Lines, that's another guy. Talk about checking all the boxes. USC checked all the boxes for him. So they're just kind of waiting to see what happens with his recruitment. We think that he's going to make a commitment uh, in the summer. And, um, you know, he's going to uh, take a mission. Uh, so he's not going to be there immediately for 2023. Uh, but could be there potentially for 2024. And then Taka Curtis, which a lot of people feel like is a, an Ohio State-USC battle. And, you know, my sources feel pretty confident that it's going to be Ohio State. Um, there's some more confidence on the USC end of things, but, you know, there was confidence with Lucas Simmons. Uh, there was less confidence with Francis Mayagoa, but there's been confidence, you know, uh, with USC, I think, for some other guys, and it hasn't worked out for them. So, I kind of tend to lean that Zachary Curtis probably ends up at Ohio State. Um, and then you've got some guys that are sort of in the maybe group that visited that big weekend. Guys like uh, Marquise Deal, who could make 
a decision over the summer, you know, that would be a nice get for USC, although he wants to be recruited as a defensive lineman, so he's not going to be an offensive lineman uh, signee for USC, even though he's rated by 24-7 sports as one of the top interior offensive linemen in the nation. And then you've got Mateo Ungalale, who could commit during the summer, might wait out. It's just one of those things that Bosco likes your guys to commit uh, before the senior season, to focus on the senior season. But that would be another guy. I think with Trey Wilson and Mateo Ungulale, you lose those two guys, and then you know the initial read on that weekend is it's a failure. Um, and you have to go back and see you know, why it was a failure and what happened on that weekend. It was just too many guys on one weekend. Was there just something done? You know, that, that initially, at least, you, you come away with the diagnosis, okay, that weekend did not go the way it was supposed to go, and you probably have to change some things going forward in terms of your summer visits. Um, but that's really, you know, where you stand. And, again, we're waiting to see how it plays out uh, entirely. And, and, and even if it is initially deemed as a failure, I have to say we kind of have to wait until signing day because – you know, what if USC is able to flip a bunch of these guys or get back into uh, the recruitments of some of these bigger players? Uh, you're going to go back and say, well, you know what? That weekend did help in some uh, manner. Even though they turned around they committed to other schools, uh, you still have to give some credit to that weekend because uh, it was basically a, a platform. Uh, um, it was the, uh, the base for being able to recruit those kids into the season. So... You know, it's one of those things. I know that the, the fan base wants to use recruiting as uh, sort of the, the barometer, the pulse of sort of the direction of the program because we're getting commitments now and the season doesn't come until later. But ultimately, everything is going to be built on how the team plays. I mean, that is why you're a Trojan fan. That's why you follow the team. You want to see them win. Recruits are, are, are part of that, and we know that, that's the lifeblood of the program to win those championships, to be elite, but you have to win games. That is sort of what it's all about at the end of the day. So you can get all caught up in the offseason recruiting and spring football and all that stuff to try to get some type of read on the direction of the program, but ultimately it's going to come through and wins and losses. I think a lot of USC fans would agree with me, and I think you would agree with me, if you take a bunch of L's, in July and June in the summer, they won't really matter if you're getting those wins in December because it still is the summer. I think if you if you take some lumps this this summer, I think you're fine as long as you get those wins in December, which I guess is what you're saying. Yeah, and that's been something that, you know, with Clay Helton, you always felt like, uh, you know, I mean, it, it could change things, but you knew that it was going to probably not happen. And the difference between this staff and Helton staff is that Helton staff had been established. They had previous seasons where they had bad seasons, you know, seven and five. That sort of lingers. All of a sudden you're trying to come back from that. And eight wins doesn't do it. Nine wins doesn't do it. You know, you got to get back to the Rose Bowl. you got to get in the college football playoff. You're not on schedule anymore. So there's always questions about a, a coach like Clay Helton being fired, not just because he hasn't really done it on the field in previous years, but because he's never done it uh, as a head coach anywhere else either. There's no built-in credibility with a guy like Clay Helton. When you 
just hire an interim coach to be the head coach and he hasn't actually done anything in any other schools, there's no patience there with the fan base. And when there's no patience for the fan base, the vibe around the program is very negative. And so when you bring in a guy that has won a bunch of games at another program, there's confidence that he has the formula to do it at your program. It may take time, but there's confidence there. So that vibe always reaches the recruits to some extent. You know, it, it reaches their families. Yeah, they only watch Sports Center to see what happened in the game. A lot of these kids are not necessarily sitting down on Saturdays and watching multiple college football games like fans are. You know, they may even be at the game in person. They spend half their time on the phone. They don't even know what goes on. I talk to these kids after games, and I'm like, you know, what was the highlight of the game for you? I mean, they don't. It's like, were you there? Were you actually at the game? Were you watching? You know, did you see what was going on? And that's not true of all recruits, but some of them, even the bigger, higher-profile guys, uh, they're not really paying attention the way that the fans do. But that sort of residual, that 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 vibe that comes from the fan base, it definitely you know sort of gets to the recruits, especially locally. And if you know the football program is going and it's hot and you're winning games. Like, it gets everybody stirred up. It gets people talking about it. And, and, you know, their friends are talking about it. And it's like, it gets to them eventually. It sort of gets through that wall of, you know, being a 17-year-old and just thinking about everything else. But, you know, what's going to be your future here? Um, and so that that's a big deal. It still matters. And that's something that, you know, at this point in time when it's like, look at USC had semi-momentum coming out of summer last year. They got... Mikel Williams committed, five-star, out of Georgia, big-time player. But I said it then, they're going to have to fend all these other schools away from Williams. Alabama's going to come coming, come calling. Uh, Georgia's going to come calling. Florida's going to come. All these schools are going to be on you. He is an elite player, all right? So you got to win those games to be able to keep an elite player like that. And we just knew that winning those games – and winning a, an elite game, you know, winning the big games to keep those big-time elite players was not necessarily in Clay Helton's resume. You know, he had that good year in 2016 where they, you know, sort of back-ended themselves into that Rose Bowl, and they beat Penn State in, in, in a classic game. But that wasn't really a great team. And you come in the next year, and it was kind of a disappointing year. And, again, they sort of backed their way into a, a Cotton Bowl and uh, played pretty lousy and got pretty dominated by Ohio State. So it was like that's what you were building on. And as you went on year in and year out, you had less impressive wins against teams that actually mattered, and they became less and less relevant nationally. And then you also started to see a deterioration in the amount of draft picks that they were having uh, year in and year out. So that was cannon fodder uh, for other schools to be able to use against USC uh, in terms of negative recruiting, because you can get on that angle of look at the lack of development at these various positions that you're seeing. And that's a big deal in recruiting because all these top elite end kids want to get to the NFL. Well, I think that's a good place to sort of end here with the cult open. A lot of things we've talked about previously, a lot of things we've hashed and some new ideas there. So we're going to get into some of our more newsier recruiting items. I think the first one that kind of hit the waves last week and is of significant importance to USC is a big transfer, not obviously with the program, but in the high school CIF level. 
and that would be T.A. Cunningham, the number one ranked defensive lineman in the 2024 class out of, I believe, Jones Creek, Johns Creek, Georgia, uh, is transferring to Los Alamitos High School. He's going to play with USC commits Malachi Nelson and Makai Lemon. So at face value on paper, this looks really, really good for the Trojans who have offered uh, T.A., and Cunningham did take an unofficial visit to campus this, I believe it was earlier this summer. USC even offered his younger brother, a 2026 athlete, TK Cunningham. Uh, the family has some great names uh, going on there. But TA, TK, both will be coming to California. Uh, Greg Biggins caught up with uh, Cunningham on his move. You know, he, he cited, you know, player development. You know, Los is playing a national schedule this year. They got a game on ESPN. So just a lot more exposure out here on the West Coast. And it's significant for the Trojans, which need high-end defensive linemen, especially when you're going to the Big Ten in two seasons. And what better place to start than with the number one rated off defensive lineman in the 2024 class? Uh, six foot six, 265 pounds out of Georgia. Big boy. Uh, he has one crystal ball prediction to Oklahoma, and I believe that was with Lincoln Riley and his staff. So there's always, when they were there, so there's always sort of this level of relationship already built in. So Gerard, big win for USC, just getting him on the, the West Coast? Yeah, it's it's huge for USC. Um, now you've got to, you know, kind of seal the deal, right. get into campus a bunch, right. um, actions speak louder than words, and just because he's at Los Al doesn't mean he's necessarily going to USC. I mean, DeAndre Moore was at Los Al at one point and committed to Louisville and promptly transferred to St. John Bosco to go uh, play with Pierce Clarkson, uh, who's also committed to Louisville. Um, so, you know, we've seen a lot of movement, and um, there is always a lot of movement, it seems, with California high schools, just with the transfer rules. Uh, but this is the first sort of IMG-level type of, um, you know, cross-country move from the South to California, he and his younger brother are going to Los Al. So that that's that's a really big deal for USC to be able to have an elite offensive or excuse me, elite defensive lineman uh, who is ranked the number one player at his position. He uh, subsequently now is ranked the number one player in California, just like that ahead of Julius Sion, who is uh, the six one one eighty five five star quarterback from Carlsbad that USC is not recruiting. Um, but you look at that two thousand twenty four class, and I mean, you see once again just locally. USC can build a, a much more balanced class locally with 2024 than they could with 2023. Um, I will say 2023 is absolutely crucial. Uh, it's going to hurt and it's going to prolong any type of turnaround for USC if they're not able to sign a good 2023 class. I mean, the, the feeling when they got Malachi Nelson to flip, Makai Nelson to flip, they get Zachariah Branch was this could be a generational class. I think Greg Biggins called it a potential generational class for USC for 2023. It still needs to be an elite class. At the very minimum, it needs to be a top 10 class in order for USC to do the things they want to do. Um, because you took a huge L there in 2022. You basically didn't have much of a class at all in 2022. It was historically low where they got, I think it was like seven verbal commitments which end up being signees at the end of the day, um, that's not going to cut it. You, you're, you know, I know the transfer portal is there, and that has supplemented uh, this turnaround to some extent. Um, I just don't know if the rules are going to change there 
with the portal to some extent that it makes it a little more difficult. You know, maybe, maybe not. I mean, Chip Kelly at this point is basically just told everyone, I- I'm just going to use the portal to mainly recruit. <laughs> I don't want to recruit high school guys. Um, their their approach has been very transfer heavy. Um, but long term, what that does to a program, can you actually build a dynasty out of the portal? I don't think so. And I don't think that's what Lincoln Riley wants to do. So 2023 is still crucial for USC, but you do look to 2024 now, and you've got Cunningham there as an elite defensive lineman that's there locally that you could you know now close on. Um, you know Peyton Woodyard, 6'2", 195 pound safety uh, out of St. John Bosco. DeAndre Carter, who's a 6'4", 340 pound interior lineman from modern day. Um, you've got uh, Aiden Erlin who's 6'5", 290, defensive tackle out of modern day, who, again, is one of those guys that hasn't been to USC a whole lot unofficially. USC's got to grind, and they got to work to get that dude on campus to get him more comfortable with the, 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 the you know, defensive line coach, Sean Nua, um, you know, Lincoln Riley, just, just the coaching staff in general. And, and you need to have these guys down there on unofficial visits. Brandon Baker, his brother went to Oregon. He's been to USC unofficially a couple times, 6'5", 285 pounds. Uh, offensive tackle from modern day, um, you know, Mar- Marcellus Williams, cornerback from St. John Bosco, whose brother Mac plays on the team. You've got Aaron Butler. He's ranked 12th in California, um, still committed to USC, as we know, um, but a guy that's been around and taken unofficial visits to a bunch of other schools, didn't go to any camps at USC, hasn't been to USC a whole lot, 6'1", 170 pounds, uh, a guy out of Calabasas, um, Dakota Fields, we did see at the camp, 6'3", 175-pound, very tall, big cornerback out of Sarah High School, a guy that USC has already offered a scholarship to. He's ranked number 14th in California. Jordan Anderson, who we've seen a bunch this summer. Uh, we saw him at the camp where he got reoffered by USC. Uh, we saw him just this past weekend uh, where he played both sides of the ball, uh, a guy that uh, you know is kind of a dynamic player that I think you could recruit at receiver or um, defensive back, quite frankly. Uh, they've got Jason Robinson committed. Uh, we'll see, you know, if that lasts right now. Talk to him a little bit over uh, the weekend and haven't had much contact with USC. 5'9", 160-pound wide receiver from Long Beach Poly. Pretty dynamic, speed wide receiver. Um, the list goes on. You know, Dylan Williams is ranked 20th right now. I think he's underrated. I, I don't know why he's only ranked 20th in California right now by 24-7 sports. But, you know, 6'3", 210 pounds, uh, a, a guy that, uh, you know, played some really slot kind of nickelback for Poly. Over the weekend, uh, he has those type of coverage skills, but he's a he's going to be a big boy. Like he's a guy that you look at immediately and say, okay, that's going to be a big time Division one player. And um, you know he's committed to USC. Eugene Brooks, 6'3", 260 pound interior lineman, also has an offer from USC from Sierra Canyon. So you see that 2024 class, and you just kind of start to look down the list. Um, not a lot of elite players right now at running back. We'll see if that changes. There's some guys up north that are good players, but Certainly, um, it's a little more balanced class. You know, you've got some good linemen uh, locally that you can recruit, uh, and those are guys that USC are going to have to sort of close to deal with. And I'm, I'm surprised to some extent that they didn't have some 2024 commits over the summer. They did that at Oklahoma. That's where you saw Malachi Nelson and Makai Lemon and Brandon Enos uh, commit to Oklahoma uh, a year before they were juniors. You know, they committed to Oklahoma in 2021, uh, as 2023 recruits uh, during that barbecue type weekend, thought maybe we might see that over the summer with USC 
Um, but we did. Maybe that happens at the end of this month where they break some of those two top 24, uh, 2024 guys in. Uh, but that's going to be uh, sort of crucial for them to get their foot in the door with 2024. And if you're winning on the field, you know, you just cruise right into that class and you can get some early commitments uh, with 2024 and, and kind of sort of get the ball rolling there. So, you know, momentum is definitely a thing. And uh, again, it's going to have to happen on the field for USC. As you mentioned, getting TA on campus as much as, as he can uh, over the next couple years is really crucial. And I think USC obviously has a huge leg up with that, especially this season with obviously his two teammates being Malachi Nelson and Makai Lemon, who I expect to be at just about every home game this season. So it's very easy for them to be like, hey, TA, we're going up to the to the Rice game. Hey, we're going up to the uh, Notre Dame game. Hey, we're going up to every home game. And it, I would be shocked if I didn't see TA at at least half of the home games this year, just because Nelson and Makai will be traveling up for the games uh, uh, this fall. So yeah, Malachi uh, needs to have Makai on one hip and and TA attached to the other hip everywhere he goes and get them up to USC as much as possible. Because uh, again, if you if you're not seeing him at at at, at home games at USC. That's 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 a that's a red flag. So yeah, USC's got to get him on campus as much as possible, as comfortable with USC as possible, and then you got to go win those football games and, and show that you can play good defense and you can develop uh, good defensive linemen and get him excited about playing in that defense. Absolutely. And moving on to our next topic, which is just a bunch of top school lists that USC has made over the last couple of weeks. Gerard, I know top school lists are your favorite thing to talk about. Uh, so I'm just going to run down these really quickly. Uh, three-star Edge, Braylon Shelby, as we mentioned, released his top two today on Wednesday, that being USC and Texas. You know, he told me after his visit he was expecting to do a July commitment, so it's going to come down to the Trojans and Longhorns. Malachi Crawford, the four-star defensive back out of Pacifica, he dropped down his top school list at three, that being USC, Cal, UCLA. So he is staying in California. He's picked up some crystal balls to the Golden Bears uh, recently. So that is a, a new development with the tall cornerback who we felt USC has been on him quite quite hard You know, this summer and spring. Uh, the other one being four-star defensive lineman Marcus Deal, who put USC in his top six. Talked a little about him and possibility of a uh, summer commitment, you know, right before the season starts. Uh, Micah Buenelos, who was, I believe, supposed to commit earlier this month. Uh, he has set his commitment to July 25th and still has that top three of USC, Oregon, and Texas A&M. So USC maybe can pick up a O-line commitment at the end of July. Oregon still has the initial crystal ball at this time, but obviously... Two weeks to go for that one. Uh, Tackett Curtis, this one's a little bit later, but he released his top three of USC, Ohio State, and Wisconsin. No surprises there. He is a guy who is winding down his recruitment. He is expected to make a commitment in July. So that will be coming in the next couple of weeks. Gerard, you mentioned him at the top of the show. Just how you felt Ohio State was sort of the leader there, but we will see. And then finally, a 2024 uh, top 24 list, which I know you're thinking like, why... Why top 24, top 2024, top list? It's 2024, but this is the number one player in the cycle 
That is Desmond Ricks, the IMG Academy cornerback by way of Virginia. I got to talk to him in Las Vegas when I watched them play over there at the OT7. USC had just recently offered, so uh, Dante Williams putting in work, getting into the top 10 of a significant overall, uh, significant five-star prospect, the number one overall player in 2024. Can USC make that happen? Oh, that one's going to be really tough, especially all the way across in the in Florida. But, you know, Dante's going to do Dante. He's got him in the top 10, going to keep recruiting him. He hasn't been to USC yet, wants to take an unofficial visit. Uh, has talked to Lincoln Riley. He said it's been one of his you know, dreams just to come out to check out USC. So we'll see if that holds up. That's what he told me when I talked to him in Vegas. So that is a significant make, especially this early for the number one overall player. So, you know, if USC has a really good season 2023 and, uh, you know, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen with uh, Desmond Ricks? But, yeah, a lot there, Gerard. If you don't want to say anything, don't have to say anything. We'll move on. But if there's anything you want to jump in with, with any of those guys I just named. I mean, I think, you know, Braylon Shelby is going to be the, the interesting one just because he seemed to have some momentum with uh, offers and his stock was rising here in the last uh, couple months. And, you know, it looked like it was a Texas USC battle coming away right. from that official visit at USC. And he called USC his top school. You know, he said flat out, USC is my top school. Um, but we all knew that, okay, but he's still got to take that official visit to Texas. And obviously Texas has a lot of recruiting momentum coming away from the Arch Manning commitment. So we'll see, you know, how this all shakes out with him. Um, I haven't really heard too much about him lately with USC. Uh, Going to have to make some calls. And again, you know, he was expected to be at Texas A&M for an unofficial visit at the end of this month. You know, does that still happen? Some of these guys, again, they just want to commit to sort of get the noise out of the way from, you know, the the, the, the larger number of schools recruiting them and sort of narrow it down. But then they kind of become proactive and say, well, I kind of still want to hear from this school or that school. You know, it, it's, it's not necessarily really the end of anybody's recruitment. And we've seen that in the past. Uh, so we'll see how that goes with Shelby. But um, that's an interesting one. Didn't expect him to narrow it down to two, to be perfectly honest with you. I didn't expect him to narrow it down to just Texas and USC. I thought both those schools would make his top list, but I was expecting more of a top five uh, with a sort of open-ended, I might commit in July, I might not. Um, but, uh, yeah, top two. So USC, uh, I mean, it's interesting because uh, they – they gave themselves a fighting chance here. And I think they, you know, made a very good impression on um, Braylon Shelby. I mean, he talked to you right after the visit and, and, you know, told you that USC was his top school. Did you feel like it was his top school because, Hey, that was the last school that he visited. Or do you feel like there were some things that could withstand uh, the barrage that was going to come from Texas on their official visit? Yeah. I mean, we hear that a lot after a visit, but I genuinely felt that USC made a really impactful impression on him just by how he was talking and, you know, he was having a hard time coming up with the words to kind of describe the visit. And that's always a good sign, but it's also, you know, they're kids, they're impressionable, they see these flashy things on a visit. But I did 
get the impression that USC was, he was serious about USC being his top school. But I always knew that that Texas visit was looming in the background. And, you know, speaking of momentum, Texas is a team that has a lot of momentum right now. Um, You know, getting Arch Manning and, you know, all the momentum after that in terms of getting the number one overall player. I know USC fans are, are screaming at their, their, uh, the podcast right now saying that Arch should not be number one because we get that question a lot. But you know, Longhorns—they're not wrong. They're not wrong. They're not wrong. We we haven't really got in to talking about Arch Manning versus Malachi Nelson and the ratings. But I'll tell you right now, you don't show up to any events and you play against little league type competition. Shouldn't little be number league, one in the oh, nation. Hard going in. I'm sorry, but you know the school for the. Uh, disadvantaged at uh, you know Lake uh, Titicaca or wherever he plays is the not for the level oh of competition God. that you have to rely on game film. Like I'm the first one to say, let me see the game film. Like I want to see what he's doing in 11 on 11, you know, full competition. But with the quarterback position, that is one of the few positions. Really, it's quarterback, receiver, and to some extent, cornerback where you can judge a player's skill set without contact to a large extent, right? You can see arm strength, you can see decision-making, smarts, so on and so forth. And to duck the competition completely, I think it kind of makes the recruiting industry look a little bit like Sims right now, putting a guy at number one when, you know, you're, you're, you're basing a lot of that on bloodlines. And listen, again, I acknowledge that. I think bloodlines definitely play a part in trying to gauge a player's potential. But not showing up and not really talking about, you know, your your recruitment and, and even why you went to Texas. And there just being so much, you know, sort of dismissing the process uh, that a lot of other kids have to go to to gain that exposure, I think is just a bad look for the recruiting industry. And I think in terms of evaluation, there just hasn't been enough there. Uh, to to put everything on film and say, well, you know what, he plays against this guy and that guy, so yeah, he didn't go to events, but he doesn't have to. No, in this particular situation, um, his competition level in high school is doesn't have enough Division One caliber players that you can make that statement. So I think absolutely uh, Malachi Nelson should be ranked ahead of him. I think absolutely Nico Maeda should be ranked ahead of him. I think absolutely. Um, you know, Dante Moore should be ranked ahead of him. I think all those guys, I think there's probably five, six quarterbacks in the 2023 class. They just have to move up ahead of Arch Manning because he chose not to go and prove that he is better than those guys. And this is, is not, don't get it misconstrued. This is not a comment on Arch Manning's character or, or, or him as a, as a person at all. Listen, you, you have that choice. You have that option not to go to these things. That has nothing to do with your character. Um, but competitiveness is a big part of what you do as a football player. And more than just that, again, it's being able to prove your skill set uh, in front of people going head to head against these other quarterbacks at these events. I think that is crucial. Uh, it, it's crucial for the industry um, to reward those players that do that, that show that they're willing to go out and compete and also. Um, show their weaknesses as well. Because that's the big thing is that, you know, you, you, I made this analogy before. You go into this beautiful cathedral and it has this mosaic on the ceiling. 
and you look at it. And when you go there for the first time, you're just amazed. You're like, oh my God, it's so beautiful. This, this painting and how they did it, it's incredible. You go there for the 50th time and you start to notice the missing tiles. You start to notice how old it looks. And there's like yeah. some cracks and you go, oh man, you know, they need to really, maybe they need to upgrade this or maybe they need to, you know, renovate this a little bit. And, and, and that's, that sort of happens with the recruiting process. It's called paralysis by overanalysis. And so guys like, you know, Malachi Nelson, who have been everywhere and, and are willing to go out and compete, and, and whether there's other quarterbacks there or not that are rated ahead of him, he's going to these events, he's going to seven-on-seven, seven, he's competing, he's trying to get better at his craft, and I think that you do have to reward that, and you can't allow the sort of paralysis by overanalysis and starting to pick apart of what he doesn't do, because a guy like Arch Manning, um, in contrast, is not doing that, and you're just basically looking at him from afar and saying, oh, wow, you know, he's so great, he's a Manning, you know, and, and kind of filling in blanks with positive attributes that maybe do not exist, that you would notice and you would see if you've seen him uh, play in person against top-level competition, or at least side-by-side top-level competition. And to go back to the original question about Braylon Shelby, this is that's what's so funny about this. This original question about Braylon Shelby diverted <laughs> to an Arch Manning rant. And we should just do an entire podcast on Malachi Nelson versus Arch Manning. I know. I derailed that completely. But the, the connection there is Texas and the momentum that Texas has uh, via recruiting Arch Manning. And then, um, so, I don't know, somehow Malachi got thrown in there, Malachi Nelson. And I was like, yeah, well, let's talk about it. So let's talk about we it. We talked about it. But we talked about it. We got it on record. We put it down. Those are my feelings. What are your feelings, Chris? What are your feelings about that, about Arch Manning being ranked not only the number one quarterback, the number one player in the nation, not having attended a single national or regional event this year? Look, I... I agree with you that there needs to be, I guess, as a quarterback, you do need to have, you need to go and compete because, you know, that's sort of like the number one position in terms of competition on a football team. There's only one quarterback. There's only one quarterback on the field. You're the leader. You're the guy. And I think if you're going to play that position, you need to kind of showcase that you're not afraid of going up against other top guys at your position. And that goes for any position, but quarterback especially. And it, it, it's sort of like when I think back of, so obviously, I, and like you said, this isn't like a comment on Arch's like character or anything, because for all I know, he wants to go out and do those things, but maybe it's a situation where the Manning hive mind doesn't want him to go out there because he has things to lose. You know, he is the one that's number one. He can be knocked off that position with, you know, a couple of bad camps or a couple of bad series or a couple of bad throws. So he has much more to lose than, say, another quarterback trying to move up like a Dante Moore or a Jaden Rashada or whoever is coming for that top spot. And I think back to, you know, like a guy like, Devin Brown, you know, former USC commit who went out to Houston to compete at that regional when people were telling him in his camp, hey, such and such is going to be there. 
such and such is going out there as well to try to get one of those elite 11 invites. And they told him, you know, maybe you should go to a different one that's not as stacked. And he didn't blink. And he was like, no, I want to go play against the best. I want to compete against the best. And what happened? He got an Elite 11 invite. And then what happened there? He showed out at the Elite 11 and became a top 100 prospect. And that's sort of the mentality that I like to see out of a quarterback. And I said it again, any position too should have that mentality, but especially at a quarterback. So I definitely think that is he number one when you take it all into take it all into context. And the only context we really have is the game field. And I would say no. And I would say, is Malachi Nelson number one? Could be. Yeah. I mean, you still want to, you know, take the time to evaluate everyone and look at the full body of work. But Arch doesn't have really a full body of work, whether it be, you know, passing events or uh, Elite 11, stuff like that. And Malachi does. And Malachi literally shows up to everything. He is not afraid of competition. You know, I've seen him have some bad series, you know, at OT7, his team was just not rolling. They got blown out by uh, Nico and his team. And that was fine. Uh, What did did Malachi do? He went out after that and they won the whole thing in in bracket play, you know? So, you know, it's okay to go out there and not look your best, but it's all about competing and shaking it off and moving on forward. And that's sort of things that you like to see. You don't want to see someone shy away from the con- uh, contact, the competition, because at the next level, that's all it is. It's competition. It's playing, you know, Oklahoma in the Red River shootout. It's playing SEC teams. You know, it's it's all this. You're going against Quinn Ewers in a couple years to, to fight for that, that starting job. So you're never going to get a break in college in terms of competition. So it just makes sense to get it going in high school and to show up to the, to the events that you're invited to, to, you know, be put under a microscope to an extent and show your stuff on the big stage with everyone watching against other guys who are just as good as you, or maybe even better than you. Uh, So that's sort of where I stand on it. Does Malachi deserve to be number one? You know? Yeah. I think the argument is there, but I think the bigger thing we're talking about is, is arch number one. And I don't think that's the case. Just if you're going off the film that, that's sort of that's sort of where I stand. Yeah, and, and I mean, to further the point, I, I think because the quarterback position is actually a position which we can evaluate a lot from. If it was a five-star defensive tackle, if it was a five-star even offensive tackle to some extent, I'd have you know I, I would have those reservations because you do, as you said, want to see the competitiveness there. But how much do you really get from watching a linebacker or a running back or a defensive tackle in non-contact seven-on-seven or camps? Not as much, right? You've got sort of an evaluation checklist that you're looking at for certain attributes, and there's things that are just going to be missing because it's a non-contact, non-11-on-11 type situation. But with quarterback, that's not the case. And again, I put a lot into game film. I feel like that is more important for um, a wide receiver or a safety or maybe even a cornerback to some extent uh, than seven on seven. But when you're playing that, you know, Lake Pontchartrain school for the flat earthers, 
and you've got, you know, JV type competition that you're seeing against, I need to see you at a, a camp or I need to see you at a seven on a seven event where there are other division one players there you're competing against and you can show out. So yeah, again, I, I think that it's not enough. And I think it's just one of those things where, you know, you eliminate yourself as being number one. It just should be an overall rule. Look at you didn't show up anywhere uh, for no good reason. Sorry, you can't be number one. That's just the way it goes. That's just sort of a policy of sorts. And, uh, and then you go from there. You, maybe you can't even be top five. I mean, honestly, that's the way I would look at it. It's like, hey, you know what? No, no offense. It's just that's what we have. It's a policy. We, don't have, we have a policy where we don't give five stars to athletes, you know, before the start of the season. And we got a policy that if you don't show up to any um, camps, specifically as a receiver or a quarterback or a cornerback, uh, where these camps we can actually evaluate a good majority of what you bring to the table as a player, as a football player, uh, despite it being non-contact, you can't be top five at your position or you can't be, you know, top 10 nationally, whatever the case may be. And I just want to go out and point out that I, and I'm sure, and I know you, we have nothing against Arch Manning as, you know, a human being or a kid. We're strictly just used looking at this through the, the lens of football recruiting and rankings. And Part of me actually feels bad for Arch Manny because he is just going, he's just being so heavily scrutinized. You know, obviously we're talking about him on this podcast and I'm sure a lot of other people are talking about him on their podcast or whatever. And, you know, he has so much pressure as the number one overall prospect circling around this, obviously this debate that we're talking about. And he has the pressure of having the last name Manning. If he was like a tight end, or whatever, you know, obviously he would not be this scrutinized as a Manning tight end, but he is a Manning quarterback, which obviously that's obviously the royalty of quarterbacks. And I just feel bad for him because he is so heavily scrutinized for doing nothing than just being a, a kid who grew up with last day Manning and decided to throw a football and play football. So I do feel yeah, bad for him. I'll interject. I, I agree with you. First of all, yeah, we reiterate. I mean, you know, Arch may be a great kid and, and awesome and, and, a, and a good student. And so, you know, certainly nothing to do with, with that at all. It, it's, the, it's the choice of not, you know, showing up to anything and not feeling that that was necessary. And I just think that that's not fair to the kids that, you know, have to go through that process in order to get that exposure and want to go through that process. And you're sort of gaming the system a bit. If you can just, you know, have a last name and, you know, put together some good sophomore film against low-level competition, then, you know, there's going to be a lot of other kids that are going to think that they can do the same thing. And so I, I think as an industry, it's a bad precedent. Again, I, I think that, you know, that itself is something that everybody has to kind of take stock in and take a step back and say, okay, you know, we got we to gotta somewhat reward the kids that are going out there and, and showing uh, their flaws as well as their strengths at these camps. And so, um, yeah, I, I think uh, standing or not, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, there's a lot of pressure on all these kids. You know, is, is there not pressure on Malachi Nelson, you know, committed to USC and Lincoln Riley's uh, guy. And, you know, a lot of people are looking at him, Dante Moore, everybody's like, oh, well, hey, you know what? He's coming out of the woodwork and, and um, you know, he, he's, he's got all this momentum now. Uh, Nico, I Maileva, I mean, $8 million man committed to Tennessee. Like, oh, my gosh, you know, he got the biggest NIL ever, allegedly. You know, there's a, there's a lot of pressure on all those quarterbacks and, and, and a lot of pressure on anybody that's highly ranked 
and going into those competitions, you know that you potentially could have a bad day and that could hurt your ranking. I mean, quite frankly, to me, it, it, it really doesn't make a big deal um, or a whole lot of sense to make a big deal out of it because, it, it, you know, rankings don't mean anything. They, they, it's really about the scholarship offers you have. And we've learned over the years that don't mean anything either. It's really about the amount of uh, letter of, of tents that you have. The, the, the NLIs at the end of the year are really the schools that wanted you. And that comes at the end of the year, you know, when you're ready to sign. So, I mean, it, it, it's all kind of a, a lot of hebaloo for nothing. But at the end of the day, I do think that it creates a lot of buzz. And with NIL and everything, creates a lot of buzz, creates a lot of opportunities for young men. And so I think, you know, it's good to make sure that the guys that are going to the events and uh, are, are, you know, feeding the process, if you will, um, should be you know, you should get a little extra something there uh, for that effort. Fair enough. Fair enough. But I will just add on to that, that yes, rankings don't matter, but we also have to remember, and I think we forget sometimes that these are just kids. They're 16 year olds, they're 17 year olds, and that shit to them matters. I think a lot of them will say they doesn't matter to them, but I think a lot of them, it does matter and it does sort of affect them a little bit. And it is a lot of pressure to put on, you know, a 16 and 17 year, year old kid. But also this is something that, you know, they sign up for and they sort of jump into is being, you know, put under the microscope and being evaluated and all that stuff. But, you know, it's an interesting dynamic, but that's just what I was, I guess my overall overarching theme is that arching? these these, arching? These, <laughs> these these prospects are kids at the end of the day for sure for sure and um you know some of the kids pay to be evaluated they pay hundreds of dollars sure. to actually get an evaluation so they can you know take that to a school and get on the the radar get on the board with them um so yeah and, and when i say rankings don't matter that has nothing to do with the back end of how rankings uh, are equated to the talent on the field and how college football teams play. I just mean in terms of, you know, for, for a guy that's a five star and it's already, you know, ranked that high, it's like, whether you're, you know, top four star guy or you're top five star guy, top 99 or top 100, like that in itself for the kids really shouldn't matter. It's, you know, you've got your, your opportunities, you have uh, legitimate scholarship offers, not the fake kind that all these schools send out and they're like, yeah, we want to recruit you. And then they don't call you um, for, you know, the next five months, but, you know, legitimate offers and opportunities. Uh, but, you know, all of the buzz that is just buzz and was kind of white noise before, it does probably matter more now uh, to, to, to sort of contradict myself because <laughs> you do have NIL. And that and, and these companies are sort of, you know, trying to get the pulse of the public and how aware they are of a particular prospect. Right. So, you know, before it was like, oh, you know, those offers don't really matter. Like kids got 29 offers, but there's really only six schools that are recruiting them. Well, you know what? Um, you know, some some some, uh, you know, Bob's bail bondsman or whatever that, that is going to say, hey, you know, I want to I want to do a commercial with uh, the top rated kid. Uh, in the Texas class, he doesn't necessarily know that. He just knows there's a lot of buzz about this particular player, and he's a household name, and that might help sell his service a little more to have this young man uh, on a commercial or something. You know, and so, so from that standpoint, um, 
all of that sort of hype, it does actually matter a little more these days. Um, so, you know, and I think Malachi Nelson, to go back to him, is doing himself a, 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 great, ser- a great service in getting that exposure, being out there and, and talking to people um, because, you know, that's exposure for any brand that's attached to his name. Right. So he gets it. He understands it. And I think he's probably talked a lot with Caleb Williams and Caleb Williams' um, approach to the NIL process and having professional people around him um, that are doing deals for him and making sure that, you know, he, he's, he's, he's getting his name out there and he continues to be a household name. And you don't do that sitting at home. So, you know, I, I think that is one of those things that uh, for these kids, um, when we kind of say maybe, you know, five years ago, eh, you know, in terms of the hype and the offers and, and, and all that stuff, it doesn't really matter so much, you know, if you're a five-star, you're a five-star. But now it does. If you're a five-star, it still matters to get out there. And what we've seen, unfortunately, is the opposite. You know, with these camps and a lot of these events, we've seen, unless the event sponsors are like flying people out, a lot of kids are not showing up anymore. And what they're going to find out is that, I mean, these companies don't know who you are. These companies are filthy casual. These companies are not on these sites 24-7 and and, and on the peristyle and, and really reading and knowing, you know, who's who. All they know is the sort of, uh, you know, the glossy uh, sort of uh, ESPN signing day type version of the recruiting process, which is, you know, the guys that are out there that are getting a lot of buzz. And so um, that's something that uh, is, is part of the process now uh, that these kids have to uh, sort of embrace. Obviously, with Manning and that last name, less so. But again, I, you know, there, there's a little bit of feeling, guy. Like, oh, you're kind of gaming the system a little bit by maybe using that last name and not having to do these other things. But I think it's a bad precedent for the industry. And that will conclude our Braylon Shelby segment. There you go. You know everything you need to know about Braylon Shelby now. Was just said. Everything that was just said. Uh, Gerard, anything you want to say on any of these other top lists before we move on to Battle of the Beach? Battle of the Beach. Let's talk a little bit about Battle of the Beach uh, this past weekend. Edison, the uh, the OG Battle of the Beach in July, which is usually the weekend of 4th of July, but it was backed up a little bit uh, this past year. So we're getting into uh, the later parts of July anymore and still doing 7-on-7. Seven seven. Yeah, we're still there. We're still doing it. We have Mission Viejo this weekend. Maybe we'll be there. Who knows? We'll see. But yeah, I was plugged in with Los Alamitos, that's who I was tracking, Malachi Nelson. I have a video up on our YouTube channel. You can see that. Some ISO highlights of Nelson and his Los Al teammates. Makai Lemon was out. He was there, but he was not playing. And you were kind of, you were uh, glued in with Long Beach Poly. So two very different Yeah, we were kind of like, we were like beat writers. Uh, right. <laughs> just uh, embedded with those teams this past weekend, which is cool. You know, it's kind of to follow them around and, and, and watch all their reps and get to see uh, the full body of work, you know, because you know, when you bounce around a little bit, sometimes you miss stuff. Um, so I went in, actually, it was going to kind of shadow Christian Pierce for Wrench Cucamonga, but he was out. He kind of tweaked his hamstring at the USC 7-on-7. He's had some hamstring issues that have, have kept bothering him. So he's um, basically uh, tapping out until um, he gets into uh, fall camp for Wrench Cucamonga. So I bounced over to Long Beach Poly which uh, our, uh, our intern, Jarrett, was already filming Dylan Williams, who had a really good uh, tournament. And uh, Jason Robinson was actually not playing originally. And then um, in uh, the second game or third game, I think, of the tournament, uh, he decided to, to, to get some run. 
and he got in there and he had a really good tournament. He had uh, some really good catches and uh, Pauly did not have Nico Aymaileva. Now there's been a lot of rumors about Nico not That's actually playing rumors. for Pauly this, uh, this season. And, some people have claimed it's part of his NIL deal, which I believe that's not true. I think some of it probably has to do with this transfer from Warren to Polly. So there might be some issues there that are preventing him from being able to play this year. Uh, his younger brother, Matt, um, Madden, I might leave, uh, is, uh, he was at Warren as well, and he tried to transfer to Polly, but word on the street is he, he might have to go to Jordan. Uh, and don't ask me how Nico can go to Poly, but Madden can't. Very complicated, but I, I think that might be more of the case than it being uh, an NIL situation. But nevertheless, we have not seen Nico very much with Long Beach Poly this offseason, even though he transferred in. Um, I think it was like in January, correct? I think it was like at yeah. the beginning of the year. And so I talked to Jason Robinson a little bit about that. I said, you know, this is a very different team than last year but we haven't really seen much of Nico. Have you been able to throw with him very much? Just, I mean, you know, he hasn't been at events, but have you been able to throw with him at school, spring ball? No, not really. Um, so, yeah, we're going to see how that goes. But, uh, you know, Jason Robinson, who's been committed to USC since last September, he committed to USC with the interim staff when Dante Williams was the head coach. And uh, he hasn't heard a whole lot from USC lately. Uh, last time he was at USC and spoke to USC was during spring game. But since then, he hasn't really communicated much with USC. So we have to see what's going on there. Um, he is a receiver that sort of fits the mold of what uh, Lincoln Riley has uh, recruited. I mean, a smaller uh, sort of slot receiver, fast. Um, but Jason Robinson hasn't been out to a lot of camps. He hasn't been out to very much. He ran a little bit of track, uh, but he's been just sort of off the radar to some extent. So it'll be interesting to see what his contact is with the coaching staff going into the season. Now, I have to say that with 2024 recruits or sophomores, um, you cannot have uh, phone contact with them. Um, you can't reach out to them as a coaching staff. So everything has to be basically initiated by the prospect. So if he's not going up there on unofficial visits or he's not calling the coaching staff, then they can't turn around and just call him like they can seniors. So there are different rules for the younger underclassmen. So some of that might also be uh, why you know he hasn't had a lot of communication with USC. So we're going to see if that picks up um, as uh, September 1st, his junior year, uh, comes along, um, but uh, he had he had a really good camp, uh, or excuse me, a really good uh, tournament uh, this past weekend. Um, also watched a lot of uh, Long Beach Milliken, who has Ryan Pelham, who has not been reoffered by USC, but did have an offer from the old staff, uh, but who has recently been reoffered. We talked about Jordan Anderson, and uh, he played cornerback and he played receiver. He had an up and down sort of mixed bag sort of camp. He dropped some passes. Um, they were really outmanned. I think uh, didn't have a, a great out offensive output. Uh, in the uh, pod that they were in, they are playing against Servite. They were playing against Mission Viejo. They are playing against Rancho and Polly. Uh, Mission Viejo looked really good. I think they're going to have a really good team this year. Saw a little bit of Dijon Lee, who I saw at the USC Elite Camp, 2024 cornerback, who's darn near 6'4". I mean, he's a, he's a big he's a big kid. Like, you look at, um, you know, maybe a, a Dakota Field, who's, uh, you know, 6'2", 6'3", 175 pounds, and he's a gangly sort of young, you know, 2024 prospect. Well, Dejon Lee is 2025, and, I mean, he, he's going to be a big boy. Um, but he's a really good-looking prospect. Michigan Yale has some good-looking football players on that team. I think they're going to be really good this year. Um, I think they ended up winning that pod and going on uh, to the semifinals. 
Um, but uh, Polly and Milliken ended up getting eliminated. Uh, Polly got eliminated by Bosco in the semifinals, and then they didn't have, uh, you know, like I said, Nico Aymaileva there. So you know, they didn't have their. So they didn't actually have a, quite a few of their top players. They didn't have uh, Dalen Austin um, playing for them either. He had a little bit of a hamstring thing. I did talk to the four-star cornerback. He's currently committed to LSU. Um, and Dalen Austin said that he's still in contact with USC, still talks to Dante Williams, um, you know, every so often, and they're still recruiting him. Uh, he had a top five that came out, took an unofficial visit to Michigan State over the summer, really liked it, says he's still committed to LSU, still very solid to LSU. Um, I think he's got Texas A&M and Oregon and some other schools that are in there. Uh, but USC sort of hanging around a little bit. And so, you know, he's, his uncle is uh, Willie McGinnis. So, it's one of those things that, you know, when, I, when he when he said he's still taking calls from USC, um, you know, I, I still wanted to talk to him and, and see, you know, how much USC is still involved with him. So we'll see, again, during the season if, you know, they're able to pick some things up and, and uh, maybe flip him. I think he's still very open. I, I think, you know, he says he's solid to LSU right now, but I, I think he's definitely a guy that um, he's keeping his options open. And I wouldn't be shocked if uh, he ends up um, unofficially visiting USC during the season. Uh, certainly, you know, he's been to USC for, for, for spring practices and everything. And so, um, yeah, he's, he's a guy that will probably be up at USC. And, um, you, you know, you prove the product on the field and you never know what could happen. Hurricane obviously involved with multiple teams on Saturday. And as I mentioned, me, I was just focused mainly on one. That was Los Alamitos with Malachi Nelson uh, leading the way, the USC five-star QB commit. And Gerard was actually very sneaky uh, this weekend because he has been I've done two videos of Malachi Nelson this offseason one being the OT7 tournament and then at the USC passing tournament that Los Alamitos won and Gerard's come to me he's like oh these videos are really good this is like the best thing you've ever done you should do Nelson no again. not the best thing you've ever done <laughs> I didn't say the best thing don't, don't interrupt really me good. don't interrupt me <laughs> this is my okay. turn to talk and he was like, you should do Nelson again for this weekend. And I didn't realize it early enough, but he put me on Nelson because the possibility – Los Al had a stronger chance to make it all the way to the championship and Gerard would get to leave earlier than me on the Saturday. So I saw what you were doing. I didn't realize it until bracket play started because I was like, Los Al has a chance to go all the way – to face modern day, but they ended up getting upset in the first round by Mission Viejo that jumped on them with a two-touchdown lead. Shout out to Chad Johnson over there, head coach, former OC at St. John Bosco, friend of mine. Mission Viejo pulled off the, I, I would consider it maybe a little bit of an upset of Losau, which uh, only had one loss in pool play, and that was to St. John Bosco. That was their first matchup of the day. And that was an interesting one because, as I mentioned, no Makai Lemon, so they were down one of their big offensive weapons, and the low sal receivers just could not get any separation uh, against those those Bosco cornerbacks. It was every time Malachi had to make a throw, it was in a tight window, and they usually had a brave defensive back right on them. So wasn't a lot of scoring early for for the Griffins in that one. Bosco was able to get a couple of stops and then put up some points and then kind of blow them out a little bit. But then they got rolling against some other teams like uh, Capo Valley. Uh, they had a very nice uh, competitive game with Warren, who there was a lot of John back and forth. They also uh, beat up on uh, uh, Sarah. 
Obviously, Roderick Robinson, he was playing. He was actually doing a little bit of a wide receiver, but just a couple of plays, you know, kind of getting his him him in that speed out in space. But he was mainly playing quarterback, had some pass breakups. Uh, Dakota Fields, as you mentioned, had a nice interception on Malachi Nelson on a deep shot. Uh, just super long. That was kind of my first time really watching him. Uh, like legit six foot three. He's going to be a beast when he adds, you know, a lot more mass to that frame. And then Jason Mitchell, uh, the six foot four kind of athlete wide receiver for Sarah, was actually playing a little bit of quarterback. They had a really young cornerback, a quarterback, but Jason was actually playing a, a quarterback early for them before they kind of sw- they switched and put in the young kid for the rest of the tournament. But that was an interesting to see him. I was like, is this some sort of wildcat? I don't know what's going on, but yeah, they they have some guys over there, and I'm interested to see how they 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 figure things out. If they figure out a quarterback situation, uh, I think Sarah could have a really another really nice season. Uh, but yeah, for the most part, the big takeaways from watching Losau were t- were two things, Gerard. One of them is that Ethan O'Connor, three-star athlete, is a dog. And I know you've been super high on Ethan O'Connor. I've been high on him as well, but I can't even say I've been on the bandwagon first because, no, that was you all the way. You've been super high on him. And with Makai out, it was a chance for him to really showcase himself as a wide receiver. He was mainly playing wide receiver, but there were just times where he was the best player on the field. And I mean the entire field on my side over there on field seven and eight. He was making so many big plays. He was talking trash, but not too much. You know, when, when they were, there was a lot of John going back and forth, especially in the Warren game. But he was making catch after catch after catch. You can go check my uh, my video out. There's plenty of highlights from him, plenty of touchdowns where he was mossing guys, bringing in tough contested catches on the sideline. He had a nice one-handed grab on a dime from uh, Malachi. Didn't catch the full thing, but I got you know, enough of it, but a lot of plays made by Ethan O'Connor on the offensive side of the ball. You know, USC's recording, recruiting him as a cornerback, and I feel like if they were taking him, I feel like he'd already be committed by now. Obviously, Malachi, Makai, two of his friends, teammates already committed, and, you know, if it was a situation where it's like, come on and commit, I feel like he'd already be committed right there, so I feel like there's a little bit of a slow playing going on and again, he's recruited as a quarterback. Dante might have guys he's targeting higher. One of those guys being, you know, a guy like Roderick Pleasant, who he faced off against. And then the other name that, you know, I don't think that is we've talked about on this show uh, because he's not really a USC target, but just Cassius Ashitani, Ashtiani, I think I think that's what it is. They call him Cash, uh, small, 2023 receiver, about five foot nine, 150 pounds soaking wet. Just a little slot guy that just makes plays, makes catches. He did it at the USC 7-on-7 event. He was one of the favorite targets for Nelson. Did it again at the Battle of the Beach. Just so many plays. Good route runner, good hands, uh, willing to lay out there for 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 a big play. Uh, shifty, small, not like burner speed, but pretty quick. And Gerard, just want to say, he is rated in the 24-7 rankings, and he is officially a two-star. That having two stars could be a lot better than having one. So just just want to give him a little love, Cassius, cash money on the composite two-star recruits because he is an official two-star recruit. So that means he's a he's a five-star in our hearts on this podcast. That's bad. That's big time. That's cash big time. Is a two-star. I did not I did not know 
that he was given that rare and unique acknowledgement in the 24-7 database because he was absolutely dominating at USC 707. Like, he was one of the top performers. I mean, yes. he was basically one of the reasons why Losal was able to win that tournament because he was absolutely clutch for Malachi Nelson. He was the go-to receiver, quite frankly, in that tournament for Malachi Nelson. It wasn't Makai Lemon who actually played in that tournament. So uh, that's interesting. Uh, Ethan O'Connor, great to hear that he's continuing to play really well. Ethan is actually a year behind um, age-wise, Malachi and Makai. So he's a little younger even. So he, he's a very young, potential-driven prospect who I've seen him just be very productive against very good competition, and he's very consistent. You know, he, and he's a guy who's a little chatty. He's not quite Jordan Anderson chatty. Because Jordan Anderson likes to go at it. He likes to go after it. Maybe a little too much, gets a little too focused sometimes on on talking. But uh, Ethan is is, uh, low-key like, he likes a psychological warfare. He's that type of dude that just likes to kind of say certain things here and there and get under people's skin. But he knows what he's doing, and he knows how to kind of pull it back a little bit. Uh, But he's a a really good player, and I think he's a guy that USC – to definitely recruit a little harder. I agree with you. I think if they really were pushing for him harder, um, they would be a little more visible in his recruitment, and uh, he would be talking about USC more. But at this point, still kind of seems like he's a guy they're evaluating and, and maybe uh, trying to figure out you know, what his upside is. I think he's being recruited mostly as a cornerback, mainly because Dante Williams was the guy that offered him. Dante Williams offered Ethan O'Connor when he was interim coach. And so that was, I think, what set them on the rails to recruiting this quarterback. Sort of like with Micah Tease, the uh, the four-star athlete out of Tulsa Booker T, Washington High School. Um, USC, you know, to their detriment, were recruiting him as a cornerback, and he wanted to play wide receiver. And I think USC could have potentially maybe landed his commitment if they were to recruited him as a wide receiver. You know, bring him in. Have him play wide receiver a little bit, see what he can do. Okay, you know what? We think you're better at cornerback. If you don't want to play cornerback, you go into the transfer portal. It is what it is. Um, but, uh, you know, they kind of held in recruiting him as a corner, and I kind of feel like that's where Ethan O'Connor is right now. Granted, I think, you know, there's potential that Ethan could play cornerback or even free safety, but he's got really good ball skills. He's got very decent ball skills. Great ball skills. And so uh, we'll see how that goes, you know, as, as – uh, as time goes on. Now, I, I am going to have to squash a little bit of this conspiracy theory that I set Chris up oh, okay. uh, to have okay. an all-day okay. all tournament. Listen, I didn't know if Nico Aymaelevo was going to play for Pauly or not. They could have easily been a team that got to the championship if Nico's playing. So you saw Nico was pretty good uh, with a team with not as much talent when he was playing for Team Toa in Las Vegas. So potentially, you have old Pauly's guys there. Pauly was you know, maybe a favorite to go and play modern day in the championship. I think Mission Viejo was a school that, you know, was more of a dark horse. And then, you know, then Santa Margarita, you kind of never know. Sometimes they, they really show out. Uh, but when I saw Mission Viejo, I knew in that pod they were going to be a team to be. They're, they're a really good team. They've got dudes that are, are sort of like all over the field that you not really heard too much about that are really good. And you know that it's a physical team that they're going to be able to play in the trenches as well. That's not just a a seven-on-seven type team that's built to be good seven-on-seven. 
Uh, they're, they're usually very good uh, at being pretty physical, too. And so they were actually, the interesting thing I will say about them is that Mission Viejo, the Diablos actually were playing their linebackers, uh, their, their standard kind of like 4-3 linebackers, and they still did pretty well, whereas you see a lot of those schools put defensive backs at linebackers just to be good in the tournament. So um, that was interesting to see from them as well. So, yeah, man, I didn't, I didn't set you up there to, uh, to, to, to have a longer day than us. I mean, we ended up uh, uh, having – we've been tapped out at the same time because Pauly got beat by Bosco in the first round, and then uh, Mission Viejo beat Los Al in the first round. Yeah, I'm not buying it. Gerard doesn't make statements yeah, unless he has the full picture. He got that text late <laughs> Friday night, like Nico's out. He's like, all right, I gotta set I gotta I gotta set up early for this play. He texted me the night before. Look, man, your Nelson videos are the shit. They're going viral. I need you on that again. I, I saw everybody th- leave a like on those videos. <laughs> Let Chris know that the that his camera and and it because this all stemmed from the USC seven on seven. And I was getting there a little later than it than it started, and so Chris is like, "Well, who should I shoot?" I'm like, "Ah, starting on on Malachi, like get on him." But they were over at the track field at Locker, and so he was in the stands, and he's like, "Well, my zoom is not as good as your zoom on your camera, so I'm not really sure shooting quarterbacks is just going to be, you know, as good." And I was like, "Yeah, I know. Well, yeah, we'll just go with it." So I watched that film. I was like, "Dude, that was great film from uh, that event. Like, you had some great highlights of." Malachi Nelson at the USC passing tournament. And so uh, when it came to uh, this tournament, I was like, hey, man, you know, I, I like your stuff. I think it's really good. And I had made that comment even after he put the highlights up. So he's just making stories up right now. He's just trying to produce content for the podcast right now. I don't know. You decide. <laughs> you decide, listeners, who's right. <laughs> who's right. And I think this is a great time. Unless there's anything else you want to add about Battle of the Beach, I think it's time to take our break. And then we're going to wrap up with some listener questions. No, we're going to have some uh, ISO video coming from Jason Robinson. Like I said, he had, a, he had some really nice catches in that tournament. And uh, we'll have some stuff with Jordan Addison and Dylan Williams as well. So uh, Strong Beach Poly is going to be well represented in uh, ISO film coming and uh, hitting the uh, site uh, the next uh, week or so. Okay, there you have it. And we'll be right back after this break and take some listener questions. Introducing the Two-Way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the Two-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the Two-Way for yourself at NewBalance.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hurricane, how was your break? It was fantastic. I got a little bit of tea. 
got some more water, and uh, I think we're ready here for the fourth quarter. For the fourth quarter, we shall go. Hold those fours up. And before we get into these questions, just a reminder that you can ask us a question for this podcast. If you got a question, email us. Email us. Email us at podcast at uscfootball.com and make sure you address it to us. You could do the composite, two-star recruits, the Latino guys, the Latino bros, Hurricane and 10K, whatever you want, just address it to us and it'll get to us. Uh, Gerard, we actually had a new uh, recommendation that we could be called. I just want to throw it at you and get your reaction live on the podcast. Uh-oh, is it, is it, a, is it a slur? No. Uh, oh, okay. The cilantro boys. That's, that's borderline slur. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about don't know. border. It, it just depends on how you said it. Like those damn cilantro boys, maybe, but I don't. I think it's a ter- term of endearment. No? I, I mean, you know, <laughs> I think um, two two star co- composite podcasters is is fine. I don't think we need to. It's going on the, you know, the next thing is going to be cilantro boys, and it's going to be the menudo boys, and then we're going to be called menudo. And I, I, I can think that's a slippery, a slippery slope. Cilantro boys, it is. That's what I'm hearing. Uh, I love it. Okay. Anyway, moving on. Again, that's podcast. No, what is it? I screwed it up. No, I was right. Podcast at usfootball.com. So send us a question. You can also DM me. Don't DM Gerard. He doesn't care about your DMs. He's not open like I am. Uh, so let's get into these. Uh, I'm just going to address the first one off the back, this bat from Mike. Uh, hey, Chris, could you guys touch on the Jordan Addison story in the next two-star podcast? Obviously, this is referring to a, a board post from an opposing site about Jordan Addison being unhappy. I just want to go out and say uh, we have heard nothing that this is not a thing. I even heard as so far as... You know, he's not enrolled yet. That is just a, as you can see, a wild rumor. So I would not put any stock into this quote unquote report that Jordan Addison is unhappy. Anything about un, unfulfilled promises. I have not heard anything like that. And I would not put stock into that. So that's, I just want to address that off the top, off the rip, so we can move on. Uh, D from Central Valley has two questions. I know Gerard, sorry, I know GM has brought up Ethan O'Connor several times. Man, if he plays high school ball, they have also said he's the real deal. Do you think, do you guys think USC will start trying to get him committed? <laughs> uh, well, it's funny. We just talked about Ethan O'Connor. Uh, no, uh, I don't, I don't get the sense, at least uh, talking to a few sources, in the last week or so, even about Ethan O'Connor, that USC is, uh, you know, going to put on the full court press for him immediately. Perhaps it comes in September, October. You know, they see the first four or five games of uh, his senior season and decide, you know what, uh, DeAndre Moore's kind of gone. Um, you know, we, we don't have a shot at uh, Brandon Enos. I, I, I don't know, you know, sort of the, the rationalizations and the conversations that happen behind the scenes with some of the other recruiting targets, um, but. You know, I think that um, they want to see him a little more, probably. And um, at this point, USC is not one of those schools that's recruiting him really hard. There's definitely more schools like Washington 
that are pushing for him much more right now. So uh, first things first, you know, they kind of have to get into the conversation a little more with more contact. And, um, you know, that usually has to stem from something. You know, it, sometimes it's an event. Um, I don't know if Battle of the Beach is really the event. Um, but uh, sometimes, you know, a kid has, a you know, a couple good games and then uh, a school comes in and really tries to uh, – to, to push it forward and, and, and kind of use that game and that performance as a catalyst to, uh, to get back into it uh, with a particular recruit. So, um, you know, I, I don't think that it's out of the question uh, for Ethan O'Connor, but nevertheless, um, I don't think that there's like this imminent full court press that's coming from USC um, in the, in the, in the near future. Yes. And UCLA and Texas are also involved with O'Connor. Uh, second question, also for GM. Uh, GM, you answer my O-line questions with your great article on Monday. I stopped paying attention to recruiting during the Helton era. Can you please tell me how realistic it will be for USC to flip an offensive lineman or any offensive lineman? Example, Elijah Jacket. I know the linemen that got nice NIL deals will almost be impossible. Well, I know uh, D from Central Valley is probably a happy man because we essentially answered that question at the top of the show. You know, Gerard mentioned Jacket specifically, you know, obviously a local kid. So that's a kid you can get on campus multiple times this season, especially if you're winning. Invite him to the Coliseum, get him there at every home game if you're playing for that flip. Elijah Page is a guy we mentioned. You know, he is a Notre Dame commit, but, you know, he's local on the West Coast, Arizona. That's not a far drive for him. Get him on campus for some home games. He has that official visit still in the pocket if you can you know, work to get him on campus, maybe for that Notre Dame game, especially if you're rolling, going there with a lot of momentum. So there are flips out there to be made for the Trojans. Yeah, and I think that has to happen ASAP. I don't think you wait around and go, well, you know, October, November, we'll see where we stand with Lucas Simmons or Francis Mongoa. I think that they have shown their cards. So now you have to make your move and you have to be aggressive in other areas. And maybe those guys at the end of the year are available again, or you have a chance to re-recruit them and get them back on campus or get in for an in-home visit, so on and so forth. But yeah, I think with the, the local recruits or the other guys that are, that are high on your board, the next group you need to go in on and, and go in and on hard. And maybe those guys are already committed to other schools. Nevertheless, you probably haven't focused on them or maybe recruited them as hard as the top guys on your board that have gone elsewhere. Next question comes from JB. Hey guys, when it comes to O-line and D-line recruits, Lincoln Riley is not doing well as Clay Helton did in 2015, 2017. It was starting in 2018 when the well ran dry and Clay Helton was not able to bring in any good O or D-line defensive linemen. Clay Helton did a much better job with the offensive and defensive lineman in his first three years as head coach than Lincoln Riley. Do you think this will change in the future from JB? Uh, right off the jump, I would say yes, uh, mainly because, as we mentioned multiple times, USC sucked last year. They're coming off a 4-8 and eight season. Clay, Clay Heldon also did not have to combat NIL uh, in the recruiting scene like Lincoln Riley has to combat NIL also in terms of, and also handling, you know, recruiting based on faith and not necessarily results as we've talked about multiple times on this show. 
I would say the other big factor is that 2016, we talked about the Rose Bowl run that USC went on and that they were able to recruit off of that. And then they turned around and they went to the Sugar Bowl. Um, or excuse me, the Cotton Bowl. And so, you know, USC had done some winning on the field and you were still recruiting kids off of the Pete Carroll era as well. And I know that, you know, you had Lane Kiffin, you had Sanctions, then you had Steve Sarkeesian that was the head coach briefly. But you still had a lot of kids that remembered USC from the Pete Carroll years. And USC had not gone to such an extreme scheme throwing the ball. They were still known as a real sort of pro-style offense and pro-style program that produced a lot of NFL first-round picks and draft picks just in general. And so there was still that residual impact and effect from the success of the Pete Carroll years when Clay Helton took over. And so I think there was still some recruiting that was coming off of that and the feeling that kids had about USC watching USC growing up. You're getting to the point now where some of these kids weren't even born when USC was winning championships and Pete Carroll was around. So what they remember from USC is more of the latter sort of Steve Sarkeesian, Clay Helton years. And the Clay Helton years were abysmal for USC. And they weren't just abysmal in terms of having some of the worst seasons that USC has had in its history as a football program, but also scandals, uh, an administration that was largely incompetent and completely disinterested in winning football games at a high level, disorganization, and you had a scheme in the air raid offense which was not good for offensive linemen. It was not good for running backs. It wasn't really good for developing anybody on the offensive side of the ball for the NFL. Now you could say, well, the NFL throws the ball more than they ever did, Gerard. That's the way the NFL is going. Yeah, it it may be eventually, but it's not to the point where you're throwing the ball 50, 60 times a game and you have absolutely no run game and you just give up on the run because you can't run the ball. It's like a chicken and the egg there. So that's what USC right now is trying to get away from. I mean, one of the things that we heard sort of on the low, and I I don't know how true it was. It was sort of a source repeating a source that said something to the effect that Connerly was a little bit worried about the scheme and USC running an air raid offense. And I immediately said, well, wait a minute. Well, Lincoln Riley's not really running an air raid offense. I mean, USC didn't really run a traditional air raid offense even under Graham Harrell. But that's not what people see on SportsCenter. Okay, so you got to remember these kids and what they hear, a lot of stuff of what they hear comes from other college coaches. You know, they're not sitting there doing the research, dissecting these schemes <coughs> day in and day out and, and, and trying to educate themselves on, on, on what's really happening. So, you know, if, if the media is just like, yeah, USC is running an air raid offense, he may not even know that Lincoln Riley, I mean, has had thousand yard rushers almost every year he was at Oklahoma. So you're combating a lot of what the hole that USC dug with Clay Helton uh, right now. And, you know, maybe this staff didn't realize how deep that hole was. Um, the various different holes that had been dug in different aspects of the football program. Like I said, it goes well beyond just 
coaching and development and scheme. It goes all the way up into the administration. And again, that a lot of those wrongs have been righted. And you've got people that are obviously care about the football program and are, are trying to progress it and move it forward now. But there's a lot of headlines and stuff that smart elite recruiters will use to, uh, to, to, to extend a narrative into you know, a kid's head, especially if a kid's just lazy and, and doesn't want to do the research on his own. So, you know, you can say, oh, Josh, why do you want to play in a pro eight offense? You know, that's not going to get you ready for the NFL. I mean, I mean the, the USC's got a completely different offensive scheme and different program and what have you. But, you know, maybe that's something that just wasn't necessarily addressed. And it was uh, a little earwig that got into his ear and that helped. Maybe, maybe not. But nevertheless, I do think across the board, they're trying to get back from that. that. That's why running the football this year is going to be maybe the most important thing, most important facet of the offense for USC and Lincoln Riley, far more important than it's ever been, uh, far more important than it ever was at Oklahoma, because they have to almost prove that they have some credibility in running the football and have credibility in developing a scheme that prepares its players for the NFL. That was always something that helped Pete Carroll with a pro-style offense, and, and they sold. Look, you come here, you're getting ready for the NFL. You go to some college scheme, and they might be good throwing the ball around, and they score 55 points a game, but that is not going to prepare you for the NFL. In the NFL, you're going to have to mic block. In the NFL, you're going to have to run through the A-gap. In the NFL, you're going to have to do this and do that. And USC had built that scheme and built that reputation with Pete Carroll, and they have gotten further and further away from it in uh, recent years. That's a really great answer. And I think it's also, it could be the answer for the next question, which comes from Joan, who says, hello, Chris and Gerard. I have two questions. I have a follow-up question regarding Francis Malioga. Obviously, Cristobal has had success getting online players readied for the NFL. So has Lincoln Riley. Oregon, Oregon was not as prolific or winning as a program as Oklahoma and Miami. And Miami certainly was marginally better than USC. Crystal Ball is in his first year at Miami, and Lincoln is in his first year at USC. Winning doesn't seem to be the underlying factor in Maui Goa's decision-making. Riley has a better record. Even with Maui Goa's other choice, Tennessee, it doesn't seem to be about development, as that isn't a shining star in the SEC either. It seems to me, and I owe money may be the key factor here, just saying. I know USC has a poor rep with O-line players, however... We did have two first-round picks with Lame Helton, and last year they were pretty darn good. I don't understand with the former Texas A&M O-line coach, Lincoln Riley, why the reticence by these offensive line players. If you were just going to look at winning, you would look at Ohio State and Alabama and maybe Clemson based on past history. I still don't get it. Thanks. And I, I mean, I think a lot of what you just said in terms of having to clear the the negative connotations around an air raid and you know sort of the holes that clay helton sort of put them in put the program in and you you mentioned now some of those holes are filled but they still have to go out there and sort of you know prove it and maybe there is some sort of uh negative recruiting going on it's just a little extra layer of things that go on with with nil in this day and age it's like you want to go you want to go play in an air raid? You know they run an air raid, right? When it's, as you said, not truly an air raid based on the success Riley has had with running the ball. And if they come out and run for 
1,500 yards this season. They have a 1,000-yard runner in Travis Dye and maybe another one in Barlow or Austin Jones. I think that would shut up a lot of those criticisms. And I think that may be another reason why you're seeing this quote-unquote reticence by these offensive line players, as you just addressed. So I think your your previous answer also plays into this this question as well. And I would add to the skepticism and sort of open-endedness to the question regarding NIL, of course. I agree with everything that's said. And I can go back to USC recruiting wide receivers with Kerry Colbert as wide receiver coach, head-to-head against Oregon. Oregon hadn't produced any wide receivers that have gone to the NFL. Oregon has no tradition with producing wide receivers that go on to the NFL. They didn't even have a scheme that hung its hat on any notable amount of production in the passing game to beat out USC for wide receivers. USC ran the scheme, had tradition, and had the recent players drafted. So what is it then? I don't know. I mean, it leads you to start to think about things doing, um, you know, again, you're, you're just sort of, you know, throwing allegations into the wind. But that, but that's all you're left with. I, so, again, I understand where the fan base comes from, where you're like, it doesn't make any logical sense whatsoever. You go down the line uh, with USC recruiting receivers against Oregon recruiting receivers, and the only thing that Oregon had over USC is just Oregon was winning more games. You know, Oregon was, uh, you know, going to the Pac-12 championship and was uh, a bit more competitive nationally. Now, they still were pretty irrelevant nationally. They still lost um, a lot of their games head-to-head against top competition. And, um, you know, they, they, they weren't that much better than USC in the uh, short season where they won the Pac-12 title. But nevertheless, it's a Pac-12 title, and it's a headline. And as I said before, you know, recruits are glossing over and looking at bullet points. They're not necessarily looking at the details and how these games were won and the development of certain positions over others. Um, but it just it, it leaves you just sort of saying, I, I really don't know. I don't have an explanation. You know, how a guy like Kerry Colbert, who is a former NFL player, former Trojan, a guy who's done it, a guy who's uh, shown to have some good development skills as a receivers coach, um, can't land receivers over a school that has absolutely no tradition at that position and hasn't produced anybody recently for the NFL and has a scheme that isn't necessarily favorable for wide receiver. Um, now, this is a little different than that, in that you're just talking about offensive linemen in general and losing to schools that may or may not have any type of tradition. Obviously, with crystal ball at Miami, you know, Miami is going to uh, really emphasize how they develop uh, offensive linemen, and they're going to use Penny Sewell and uh, anybody that they had recruited at Oregon um, and drafted to be, you know, sort of a catalyst to be able to recruit other offensive linemen. You know, is that the end-all, be-all? Is that what really beat out these other schools? I don't know. I don't know. But for USC, just looking at USC sort of in a bubble and not necessarily head-to-head against anybody else or, or where these kids are going um, – you know, USC has some housekeeping to do. You know, it's one of those things where, like, you can complain about losing uh, receivers to Oregon and looking down the checklist of all the things that USC has that Oregon doesn't have. But in a day when you're winning four games or you're only winning seven games or eight games and they're in the Pac-12 championship, then, you know, I mean, hey, you're not really putting yourself in a great position 
to be able to win those recruiting battles in terms of uh, winning football games. And I, I think that's where it still matters. I think that if you have those types of losses, you're not nationally relevant. Your coach is going to be called into question and be put uh, on the hot seat. And I think Clay Helton, I mean, he got the job and was immediately on the hot seat. It, that, that was the thing that uh, USC, for some reason, Pat Hayden thought he could overcome that. And maybe after that 2016 season, there were like a handful of people that thought, yeah, man, man maybe it could really happen. Maybe he could really do it. But you are always sort of swimming against uh, the, 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 the current because Clay Helton had never done it anywhere else before. He had never established a reputation for being a winner, for developing talent. He didn't even call his own plays as an offensive coordinator at USC. He'd been an offensive coordinator one other stop at Memphis, and that coaching staff was fired. There was nothing there for anybody to really look at from a resume standpoint to say, okay, this guy, he knows what he's doing. He's qualified to be able to get to a championship, and he's qualified to be able to develop these players at various positions into being winners. And so that was something that USC was constantly fighting against, and it really doesn't help you when you go out and you only win five games. Because that was, you know, sort of the beginning of the end for him. Because, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to make this massive comeback next year winning eight games? Oh, well, congratulations. That ain't winning anybody over. And that was really what Clay Helton at his best was kind of capable of. I, I think the 2016 season was a bit of an enigma. It was a bit of a – it's not the right word. It was a bit of a um, – it was an outlier season for him, you know, the, the, the losing all the games at the beginning of the season and then putting Sam Darnold in. I just think a lot of teams that sort of like wrote USC off and they were able to win some games with Sam Darnold that they would normally uh, be able to win. And then after that, everybody was like, okay, you know, we know what USC is about and, and winning eight games with a considerable amount of talent advantage was basically what they were, what they were capable of. And once that talent valid, uh, advantage started to erode a bit with the recruiting. And that's, that's where you see recruiting have that impact on the team and the team have that impact on recruiting. It, it's sort of symbiotic, right? You, you, you kind of had to have both for both to be good. And the, the team was mediocre and recruiting started to slip because of that. And once recruiting started to slip, you started to have these big holes in certain positions in terms of depth. And then you start losing the games. And now all of a sudden, you know, you're looking at uh, five win seasons and four win seasons, and you're not going anywhere on the recruiting trail when you start doing that. So um, now you've got a coach that's done it somewhere else before. He's won championships. He's gotten to the college football playoff. You know, can he get over that hump with the type of talent he can get at USC? That's the question. But you got to be able to win uh, the first, uh, you know, you got to take those baby steps and, and win the division and win the conference before anything else, get to that Rose Bowl, and then you start looking forward and say, all right, now we need to be able to close on these elite players to get us over that sort of obstacle of just, you know, being happy to, to hang around in the college football playoff and get beat by three touchdowns. We want to be there. We want to be competitive. We don't want to have a chance to win a national championship. This isn't a question, but this is a comment from Flow LA. I think it's awesome what you guys are doing. Keep ripping Latinos in the space, brothers. Cilantro Brothers till the end. That was my ad lib. Uh, his comment, uh, pre-July 1st when SC was still in the pathetic 12, I found myself rooting for every Pac-12 school. Yes, even UCLA versus LSU. I'm a West Coast guy. I'm pulled for our teams. Yes, Ohio State 
OSU, sorry, Oregon State and Wazoo in every sport. However, today, while I've come around to embrace the move to the Big 18, I don't think I'll root for Minnesota or Rutgers like I did Colorado or Utah in big games. Part of me is still rooting for the original Pac-10, except for Oregon. Tell Hurricane, I too love running in the heat. People think I'm nuts. Love the shows. Thank you for your comment, Flo LA and Hurricane. As you heard, he also likes to run in the heat. I don't know how you guys do it. So there is at least three of you out there that like to do that. I think uh, that's, a, that's a great comment because I think it's true. And I, I kind of, I feel that, you know, um, I, I like the Pac-12. I like West Coast football. I, I feel like, you know, I have a voice for the Pac-12 and for West Coast football because it's often dismissed. You know, a lot of people just think, oh, you know, those L.A. people, they're not football fans. They don't know football. They're off surfing and eating their sushi. And, um, you know, you just you save the football for uh, the people in the Midwest and the people in the South where, you know, it really matters and, and people uh, care about more. So I agree with that to some extent. I'm, I am saddened that – you know, these schools couldn't do for themselves and couldn't get it figured out. But you know what? It sort of, um, it is what it is. And, and and the reason why USC had to make that move and, and UCLA make that move, which, you know, I think UCLA just, if it wasn't for USC, probably wouldn't make the move. Um, it was just a good opportunity and it was easy for them to do. Uh, I think if uh, USC isn't the, the, the catalyst and sort of the tip of the spear with this, um, you know, UCLA would just be hooked up with Cal, which would be just hooked up with not really taking football seriously or investing in it. Um, I've said time and time again, I think, you know, with, with a school like Cal, you have a lot of fifth columns there and a lot of people trying to undermine um, the athletics and the sports because they're threatened by it. They feel like this is higher education and there's other priorities, um, both academically and socially, that should take priority over athletics. And um, athletics, because of the money that it can generate, uh, can sometimes overshadow those things. And so there's this constant push to try to undermine. Uh, and I've seen it up close. And, and I think that's true of, of several Pac-12 schools. And ultimately, it did them in. And, and right now, it's sort of, you know, they're being judged by it. Because the Big Ten's looking and the Big Ten's considering, you know, all the various different things that these programs have to offer up and down the West Coast. Um, I don't think they're done with looking at West Coast schools. And I think Stanford puts themselves in a good position, uh, mainly because they did have success under Harbaugh, and people still remember that. They still remember that if Stanford gets the right coach that can convince those people in academia that, hey, it's it's great to have good football. Like, we can do both. Um, it can happen at Stanford. You know, there's a lot of money at Stanford, too. Um, and there's a lot of money on the academic side, and I think that is, you know, not just lip service from the Big Ten. I think they do want – to have research grants and that do want to have top research schools uh, as a part of their little club. Um, and that's maybe the big difference between them and the SEC. And so uh, I think Stanford's definitely there. They've got a good relationship with Notre Dame, playing Notre Dame annually, just like USC plays Notre Dame annually, and the Big Ten wants Notre Dame. Um, I've heard, you know, Miami kind of talked about a little bit as a, as a little bit of a side school that, you know, a lot of people would think, oh, I would just join the SEC, um, but would be – uh, kind of a, a nice market for the Big Ten to have. And, um, you know, kind of a, a really, again, kind of reemphasizing the national reach of what we call the Big Ten now into a, a super conference going forward. Um, so, you know, there's some schools even, you know, there was a post, and I don't know how legitimate this is. This was just on the peristyle 
uh, where there's some people at TCU saying that the Big Ten is very interested in TCU and they're interested in that Dallas-Fort Worth market and Texas Christian being a private school. Um, I don't know academically where they stand or what have you, but uh, there being some interest there, and I could kind of see that a little bit. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to see how this goes from coast to coast, but at the end of the day, you are sort of losing a little bit of your um, – you know, rooting for just West Coast schools because they're West Coast schools and there's California kids, you know, all over that conference of the Pac-12 uh, or what we knew of the Pac-12. And, um, you know, even in bowl games where, it's, you know, USC is not playing, you still root for Utah to, to beat Ohio State or, or, or something like that because you just know that the uh, the reputation of the West Coast and um, the uh, the constant sort of, you know, you don't belong or, or you, you're not really a part of what big-time college football is about uh, is erased when, uh, you know, USC is able to do what they were doing under Pete Carroll. Uh, Gerard, we have some three questions left, technically four, because one is a two-parter, but... Yeah, you're going to say breaking news. No, we have no breaking <laughs> news. We have no emojis, nothing like that for now. We probably still have a little bit more of this podcast, but this one comes from R.S.C. Hindler, a question for Gerard and Chris. 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 As the both of you may have noticed, there has been a glut of posts on the Peristyle recently describing USC's ineptitude in securing top-ranked offensive line recruits, which seems to appear like a virus after Maui Goa made his verbal to Miami. The main point of criticism centered around the media firm's state-doubted and seemingly inadequate qualifications of its principal, Michael Calvin Jones, while many other critical posts stating USC just wasn't offering enough bags of cash in order to compete with schools like Miami and FSU. Concurrently, one of the main critics on the Peristyle received a direct call from a highly placed source within the athletic department to help clarify what is actually happening behind the scenes, and this poster then issued a revised stance from his original opinion. Part of this revised stance actually reinforced what GM has been saying on several two-star podcasts, that this team now under Ryland will need to perform well in the coming season in order to demonstrate a new direction for the program and a departure from the previous regime under Helton. Always unsatisfied, several posters then asked why Miami and FSU received commitments from top-ranked offensive linemen when their programs haven't been that great in the past few years. In other words, they didn't have to prove it. Why should we? It's got to be the cash. Can either of you please shed more light on this issue and provide more insight in order to relieve all the inane anxiety concerning the program's current direction? Wow, that was a mouthful. That was a mouthful and i feel like we addressed you, probably <laughs> everything that was uh, asked yes i feel like everything that has been asking this question we have addressed and you have eloquently addressed as well in terms of you know there's a lot of rot still from the clay helton era and you gotta upend that and prove it on the field and i know you're probably tired of hearing that but this is July. There is really not a lot to talk about in terms of with the team. So when something bad happens, like you lose out on a Lucas Simmons or Francis Maui Goa, that, you know, that cycle keeps happening. And that quote unquote inane anxiety comes out on the board. And, you know, they think the the world is falling. And I get it. You know, it's a it's a tough loss at a position you really need to hit on in 2023. So I understand the frustration and I understand the concern, but it is only July. 
And this team, I feel like, is going to win games. And I think that's going to, when you're going to see it alleviate a lot of those concerns with offensive line recruiting moving forward. So maybe I'm setting myself up to get dunked on later in the, in, in the year, in the fall. But, you know, again, we have addressed a lot of this so far in the questions that have been asked. Um, and I don't think it was a source within the athletic department. I think it was a source within state doubted Gerard you could probably clarify that yeah it was uh an interesting post and it was the result of uh, a lot of anxiety and some posts that talked about the non-collective that USC has and USC sort of danced around uh, having a booster-led collective which uh, many of these schools which have been uh, very successful over the summer grabbing commitments have very visible collectives or boosters in the case of Miami that have been very vocal and very, very upfront in their support of their football programs through NIL. And so um, it's understandable once again, and listen, I cannot sit here and say it's not about the cash. Um, these deals are private deals among private individuals all we can kind of try to break down is uh, what's possible and then what the limitations are based on the rules and, you know, how USC decides to move on that and, and what direction they ultimately decide to go remains to be seen, but it's definitely not a situation where from a compliance standpoint, it's, you know, better to ask for forgiveness than permission. You know, they're definitely being very hesitant and they don't want to jump in head first and um, have boosters uh, lead the way in, um, you know, inducement type deals. So we just have to kind of see how it goes. So, I, I mean, again, I understand the concern. You know, I, I think panic is, is, is not necessary, but the concern for it, and we just kind of see how it shakes out as the year goes on. Um, but, you know, it's certainly right to point out that some of these schools uh, like Miami are landing five-star after five-star when, you know, Mario Cristobal hasn't done anything at Miami. Miami hasn't done anything for Miami in the last, really, the decade. Um, and Mario Cristobal was pretty below average even at Oregon. Uh, he was uh, – you know, the, the, probably the most successful head coach in the last handful of years in the Pac-12, which was a below-average conference. Let's just face the Pac-12 has sucked the past five to ten years. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, it, it's, it's definitely reasonable to point that out. Um, but, again, these schools like Texas A&M, or excuse me, these schools like Miami and Louisville um, and Tennessee – have not signed anybody yet, right? They've got commitments. So really Texas A&M is the only school that we can look at as, as, as having sort of a mediocre season and still, um, you know, outkicking their coverage in terms of uh, the recruiting class they're able to sign. And, uh, and that was last year, and it just seems like they made a move where a lot of other schools just weren't really sure about, you know, what they wanted to do with collectives and, and how all in they wanted to be. 
and Texas A&M was incredibly aggressive, and um, they were able to, to sign a, a an elite class that was, um, you know, almost historic. So, uh, but again, I, I also point to them beating Alabama, and that was something that they did that they could sort of point to and hang their hat on. Um, USC did not have anything like that, had not beaten a school worth a damn since 2016, uh, quite frankly. I mean, you got to go back to uh, that 2016 year, and quite frankly, it was what? Penn State was the only school I think they really beat that was a good program. They didn't beat Austin that year. They, they, uh, they, they skipped the Pac-12 championship game. And again, because Washington ended up in the college football playoff, they were able to back their way in to the Rose Bowl. That year, the planets aligned for Clay Helton. And even coaches on that staff told me that. I've shared that story before, that I talked to coaches on that staff that said, we are really, really glad that we didn't have to play Washington in the championship game because we probably would have lost that game. We probably would have lost that game by a good amount. Washington was a better team than us uh, at that point in the year. And so they were able to sort of dodge Washington in the championship game and get Penn State. And, uh, you know, they, they played really well in the opening against Penn State. And then, you know, Penn State came back on them and, and they had to use some heroics at the end of the, the game to be able to win it. Um, but outside of that, uh, you know, not a lot of games won against teams that are ranked or nationally relevant. And so that's also something that just it's something that sticks in these recruits minds. Um, those big nationally televised games, those are things that, you know, kids actually do watch and they may not watch the whole game. They may just watch part of the game and then watch some highlights and just see the score or whatever. But if you're just constantly losing those games, then it's just not a good look for your program. So that's something on USC. Again, you know, you can point to Miami, you can point to Tennessee and say, hey, those are mediocre programs as well. They've got some commits right now. Uh, they don't necessarily have those kids signed. So I, I don't want to necessarily put a whole lot of emphasis on that. Moving on, our last three questions. Let's power through these, Hurricane. Let's do this. Uh, this one comes from Jesus. Uh, Chris, here's my take on the Luau and question about recruiting. On the Luau, I think it was a thing focused on pleasing Francis. It could have been taken as what everyone does. In comparison, I am from Spain, and every time someone asks me about bullfighters, it's annoying because it's just stereotypical for me. If their point was to make Francis feel more welcome, they could have done a traditional dish or something like that. My question is about O-line, D-line, since they missed on the main targets. Do you guys think Coach Riley and Coach Henson will focus on lower-rated guys, or will they go for the transfer portal since that seems to have worked for for them this past year? Thanks for asking. And I'm also going to combine that last part with a question from Giovanni, who says, in light of summer filled with L's on the recruiting front, do you see this team being another transfer portal heavy team come end of December? I don't think it'll be obviously as transfer heavy as they were this offseason. And I think, and Lincoln Riley has said as much, well, this is sort of a unique season and they don't really want to rely on the transfer portal as much as they did this year moving forward. So I think there's going to be more emphasis on signing high school kids than there are transfer portal. And in terms of the offensive linemen, I feel like they're just going to go off their board, whether that's a Spencer Fano or a Caleb Lomu. You know, maybe you have one four-star offensive offensive line signee in this class, maybe two, but you don't really have that blue chip guy. I still think you keep your eye out on the portal, especially for offensive linemen, because high-end offensive linemen are hard to come by, especially ones with college experience. So in this day and age, you always want to keep an eye on the portal. So if, you know, a starter at, I don't know, uh, I'm trying to think of a team off the top that's sort of in the middle, like a, a, a starter at Tennessee, you know, 
enters the portal, I think you go after him. Or a starter at Florida State enters the portal, you kick the tires. Do you see? Because USC is going to need some stability at the offensive line, especially when you have, you know, Andrew Andrew Voorhees' last season. Bobby Haskins is a grad transfer, so he'll be out the door. Uh, Brett Nealon, he's out the door as well, and possibly Justin Dietz. So you could have four guys that are starting gone, and you don't have a lot of uh, depth at the, at that position. And even if you sign six offensive linemen in 2023, they're still high school guys. You're going to need older guys to kind of help bridge that gap, give you more time to develop them year after year, especially when you've got the Big Ten looming in 2024. So I definitely think they're going to have to look at the portal. I think you're always going to have to look at the portal. And if top end offensive lineman, a starter at another power, power five program enters, you got to, you got to kick the tires. You got to take a look. So I would not be shocked if they brought in like a two, two veteran guys that hit the portal. I mean, that's just me looking super far ahead, but I would be shocked if they didn't bring in some veteran offensive lineman out of the portal depending on what hits the portal, you know, next portal season. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, you talk about experience. I think the one thing that you have to look at, and if you're Lincoln Riley, can you really build a culture out of the portal? No. I think you have to look at the portal as a plug-and-play type of, Cool to get a player here, a player there, where you maybe haven't had depth and you recruiting hasn't been very good at. You know, you've got a specific position where you've missed a couple cycles on top players, and you feel like in order to to be competitive at a championship level, you do what Alabama's done, and you go grab those top end guys and you plug them in at certain positions. But you don't have thirty odd transfers you don't basically go in to december going okay we're going to basically try to turn the team over completely and bring in a bunch of guys from the portal because they are mercenaries to some extent these guys want to be one and done and there's not necessarily a lot of culture built into that mentality your culture is going to be built into your freshmen and the guys that you're able going to be able to keep around three four years five years that's where um, the the sort of uh, buy-in comes from. And so I, I think that's going to be imperative in recruiting and why the 2023 class, again, is very, very important. Um, will they have to go out and get some guys potentially on the offensive line or defensive line? Yes, you're being forced. I mean, you, you can't not. You can't just say, well, you know, our culture is going to suffer if we go in and grab some, you know, guards or something out of the porthole. Well, you don't have any real choice. Now, USC has bodies there. They have some depth, but they just don't have those elite guys that they've recruited that are waiting in line uh, to start. Right. So, yeah, I do think they're really not going to have a lot of choice if they don't uh, get those guys in 2023, and it doesn't look like there's a good chance that they're going to get those immediate impact-type players. So, yeah, you're going to have to go to the portal. You're going to have to recruit offensive linemen. The problem is all the success they've had out of the portal hasn't necessarily been seen on the offense or defensive line. Okay, They've gotten some edge rushers, gotten some good linebackers, uh, but interior defensive linemen and offensive linemen 
have been few and far between. And we thought when they lost out on Josh Connerly Jr., they already had Bobby Haskins. Potentially they could go out and get a guy that would be an immediate impact player. The issue with that is twofold. One, there are not a lot of those guys available. As Chris said, I mean, they are a hot commodity. Offensive linemen, particularly offensive tackle. Anybody who's got any kind of starting experience at a, at a Power 5 school as an offensive tackle uh, becomes a premium in the transfer portal. Um, second of all, uh, they just haven't gotten a lot of those guys even to, to entertain them on campus. So, you know, they're struggling recruiting even from that standpoint of getting guys on campus who are transfers, who are top-end transfer prospects to be able to consider USC. So, you know, you can't just wait around and go, oh, that's cool. We'll, we'll get a bunch of guys out of the portal. They, they, they needed to get a guy out of the portal after they lost Josh Connerly Jr., and they weren't able to get another top-end prospect. Again, there wasn't a lot of guys out there. The talent pool wasn't great at that particular position, um, and it, that may be just the case as well. I mean, there may be some positions year in and year out that we see uh, there's just going to be more transfers at than others. And, um, you know, we also have to see how the regulations evolve with the transfer portal as we go forward. Because I know a lot of college coaches are not happy with how crazy and chaotic it is right now. I mean, college football recruiting, now that you added the portal into it, it's just nonstop. It's absolutely nonstop. And that, you know, I mean, it's just a, it's a little unfair for, for everybody involved um, to not have some type of break at certain points where you say, all right, you know, we can breathe here and start to look at the players we have on campus instead of always focusing on the players we want to have on campus. And our final question also comes from Giovanni. He had a two-part question and it's sort of a fun question to end on the best and worst sports movies of all time or TV show. We could just say any CW show that involves football. Absolutely terrible, i.e. All-American and Riverdale. Interesting, interesting. Yes, Riverdale, absolutely. Uh, so you don't know the highs and lows of high school football. If you understand that quote, you get it. If you don't, I'm sorry. Uh, but I guess the best and worst sports movies, I'm a big... Friday Night Lights guy, the movie, not the show. Uh, Coach Carter and The Replacements. The Replacements football isn't great, but I think it gets the job done. And those are some of my favorite sports movies. The worst one, I would say, is that 50 Cent, Things Fall Apart, where he plays that running back with a disease. If you watch the football in the beginning... I don't know what they rented out like a hockey stadium, but in the beginning, there's a wide shot and you can actually see the team. They're supposed to be on the sideline. They're actually like on the field, like the crappy turf they have. They're just literally on the field. Like just imagine a football game where USC sideline is not on the sideline, but like three yards onto the field. That's what it looks like in the wide shot. It's so ridiculous. It's so terrible. Uh, so... That 50 Cent movie where he lost, like, all that weight to look like a cancer patient, that is the worst sports movie, I think, I think out there. Gerard, I don't know what you think. I don't know what your favorite or worst sports movies of all time are. I've never seen that movie, but I'm going Good, to say that, that is the worst one of all time just by your description. <laughs> um, so bad. I would say the best for me is the program. I mean, that okay. just has sort of nostalgia. 
Um, we used to watch that all the time and when I was in high school and, um, you know, place at the table, like it just, I don't know. It, it, there was a lot that went into that movie and it wasn't, you know, the greatest in terms of, um, you know, showing how, you know, college football is, uh, but it had a lot of nuance to it. And, and there were little things here and there that you saw that you kind of gave a nod to. And, uh, it was pretty intense football game, um, that they, that they were playing, and uh, the storylines for, for each uh, player. And, and you know, there was a little bit of the recruiting process in there as well. That was interesting. Uh, I think for sports movies and, and not football, Blue Chips is very interesting. And mm-hmm. watching Blue Chips now with everything going on and, and knowing that uh, this is not necessarily new to college football, NIL is, is maybe making it a little more um, above board or on the table as opposed to everything happening below the table, uh, which is, we're going to see how that shakes out. You know, there's always Uncle Sam, I, I said, he's, he's looking over your shoulder uh, with all this uh, millions of dollars going back and forth. And college football and the NCAA doesn't get their stuff together. Uh, the feds are going to be knocking at the door uh, to, to, to start asking questions. So um, Blue Chips was, was a really good movie. Uh, it, it dealt a lot more with the recruiting process um, than, uh, than the program. Program was just more uh, of a good football movie. Um, another movie that I just didn't like that I thought was stupid was any, for any, was it Any Given Sunday? I, I oh, just okay. with Al Pacino and, and Cameron Diaz. I just thought it was just over dramatic and dumb, and I don't know. I, I didn't like. There's a lot of people that liked it, and I, I just didn't think it was was very good or very accurate. Um, but uh, that might yeah, be a hot so. take. That might be classified as a hot take because I know a lot of people like that movie. I'm indifferent on that movie. Yeah, I just, I just think Al Pacino. Al Pacino as a coach is like a character of a of, of a coach. He, he, he just that's not a role for him. You know, he's 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 done some roles that have been fantastic. Uh, that's just not a role for him. You know, I, I think that, you know James Caan, Interestingly, with um, the uh, the program, he just passed away uh, a yeah, few days ago. R.I.P. Yeah. So, uh, but he was a better coach. Uh, interesting. You know. The, Two Godfather guys <laughs> to, to be to be uh, to football coaches uh, from the Godfather to being a football coach uh, definitely a little bit of a 180. But um, I think he played that a little better. That wasn't necessarily my favorite character, but um, it was just uh, you know with Hollywood, it seems like anything they do, you know, there's just a lot of stuff they do for um, effect and, and over dramatize it and what have you. So you kind of have to look past that stuff. I think anybody who's a part of any industry. You know, if you're a doctor watching movies where they have medical scenes, you've got to roll your eyes. Sure. If you're a, a a welder and it's a movie where they have scenes where uh, you've got mechanics and you've got people working um, in that aspect, you probably roll your eyes and go, oh, my God. If you're, you know, a, a former, you know, a, a Marine and it's a war movie, there's probably a bunch of stuff in there that's cringy. It, it's hard, you know, when you know enough about a particular industry, a particular media um, to, to look past all the faux pas that happen in most movies. There's so many movies that uh, are just lazy when it comes to the details. That's me when I watch All-American as a recruiting writer and someone who covers high school sport. That's, that's, that's a perfectly summed up explanation of me watching All-American. I roll my eyes till they pop out of my head. It's just terrible. I'm just going to, I got to, I got to show you some clips. I got to record some clips and just like show them to you one day when we're at a tournament or something. That's on my list. I don't look forward to it. Uh, he doesn't. Okay. I am terrified by the fact that we almost 
broke last year's not last year last episode <laughs> last episode's length, which was our longest, almost three hours. This one is coming very close to breaking that record. So, and this wasn't even supposed to be a super long episode. This was to be. I, I I remember saying at the top like this is going to be in and out. There wasn't a lot to talk about, and here we are, nearly setting the record for length once again. Gerard, I got to get out of here. We're done. This this wrapping up. Anything else you want to say before we move on? No. Uh, look forward to maybe next week. I don't know, man. We got to figure out um, when we're all going on vacation here, man. Like uh, we, we need some time off. We've been going at it nonstop since, uh, you know, uh, November, obviously. Um, I guess we got some time off with the uh, Clay Helton firing and Dante. Oh, wait, no, not, not really, because then there was a coaching search, but uh, nevertheless, um, yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll probably have a break at some point here, uh, in July, you know, try to pick a, pick a week or two when there's not a bunch of uh, commitments happening. Um, but, uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll stay on top of it and, um, keep bringing you guys the latest. And obviously we're always there available on the pair style, uh, to, uh, break down any other, uh, recruits that pick Miami over uh, USC and everybody else. Damn. Damn. Okay. Well, I'm Chris, that's Gerard, a.k.a. Hurricane. This is the Composite Tucson Recruits, and we will check you next time. Death Leopard sucks! The time has come for drag queens to save the world. RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars is back on Paramount+, Plus, and for the first time ever, I want you to use your talent for good for a change. <laughs> Eight iconic queens are competing for the charity of their choice. This is how you do drag. Who will slay it forward, win cash for their favorite cause, and a coveted spot in the Drag Race Hall of Fame. RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars, new season now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Go to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Terms apply.